That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. A little bit of a newsy day on the Pac-12 front. Uh, you know, I got I to gotta be honest with you. You know, I, I'm kind of only into talking about the Pac-12 and their media rights when I see stuff happening. And there's some stuff happening we're going to talk about on today's show. I think, uh, I think we're in the final stretch of all of this. We'll talk about the Blazers. They are six days away. Six days away from making a big decision. You know, there are very few, few things in sports when it comes to pivot points in a franchise. You know, the firing and hiring of a coach, maybe. Maybe the uh, maybe a free free agent signing in early July if you're an NBA team or an NFL team who grabs Aaron Rodgers like the New York Jets did in the offseason. The draft is one of those pivot points. And in fact, from the Blazers' standpoint, given that they haven't participated in free agency, like if we're being real, Trailblazers organization, it isn't like they've boycotted free agency. They just haven't been able to get markedly better in NBA free agency since probably the signing of Brian Grant. Oh, yeah, it's been that long. And Brian Grant's not that old. You know, I know Brian Grant. We've had Jaden on the show over the years as well. But, you know, when Brian Grant in nineteen, the summer of 1997 chose the Portland Trailblazers and said, I want to go play for them, signed a six-year, $56 million deal. He had, um, he had an opportunity to, uh, to uh, you know, stay in Sacramento or go anywhere else. He chose Portland. The last time anyone of that magnitude chose Portland was Brian Grant, like if we're being real with each other. Um, and he was a big-time signing for the Blazers. He picked the Blazers. That had to feel good. If you were a Blazer fan around 1997 and you were looking around the league, you know, it wasn't like the Blazers of the last, oh, 25 years or so who have uh, middled around uh, making small plans in the offseason. Brian Grant picked the Blazers, but the Blazers organization hasn't been able to parlay the summer particularly July and free agency, into anything more than a bunch of hype and a bunch of appointment. It's kind of become a rite of passage. If you're a Blazer fan who is about, you know, 35 years old or younger, you anybody picked the Trailblazers since your, your early childhood. And if you can remember it, Brian Grant did it in 97. So you have to eliminate free agency if you're a Blazer fan from the realm of possibility like this summer. Like you wouldn't count on it. You know, as uh, people tell you, the best predictor of behavior is past behavior. Well, the best predictor of behavior for a franchise is watching what has happened with the franchise over the last 20 or 30 years and going, okay, what can we glean from this? And I think it's one of the things that I have found amusing, not in a funny way, 
uh, amusing in a, uh, I guess, a peculiar way when general managers have taken the job in Portland. And I saw it over and over and over again. It was repeated. It was a mistake that was repeated. It was a mantra that was repeated. You know, Bob Witsit was able to take hostages back in the day. And, you know, he made trades. He made trades for players. He didn't necessarily make big uh, big, uh, you know, big time, big time uh, free agent acquisitions. He took hostages. And I remember when Neil Olshay, 2018, 2019, was bellyaching about the fact that, you know, it's a really hard job, this GM job in Portland. And I remember thinking back to what Bob Whitsitt had said, like in 2002, 2003, it's a hard job, but that's the job. That's what the money's for. Don Draper said it in Mad Men. Like, that's why you're making the money. Go find a way. You know, Danny Ainge, when he didn't get the number one pick in Boston in 07, what did he do? He didn't sit around belly aching about, oh, it's a really hard job. I can't get it done. No, he went out and he said, okay, we're not getting Durant. We're not getting Odin. How about Kevin Garnett? How about marrying Garnett and Ray Allen and Rajon Rondo together? Okay, that works. Uh, Bob Witsit came on the show in 2019, and I asked him about the job in Portland because free agency is tough. But Bob Witsit got it done via trade and got it done via the draft in his era. Well, I was told we couldn't do it when I went down there, and um, I, I believe you can do it. It takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of creativity, and it takes a lot of, uh, you know, there's there's just a lot of markets players don't want to live in. And uh, that's something you've got to overcome, and you've got to create environment. You've got to uh, create relationships. Um, you've got to make it happen. And, and so – you know, I'm a believer that, yes, you can make it happen. I'm a believer you can get free agents to come to Portland. I'm a believer you can build a championship team in Portland. And uh, if you get the opportunity to do that, um, you've got to figure out all the different ways to make that happen. So uh, uh, I think it's too easy to say, you know, everybody likes to have excuses. Yeah. You know, and I don't mean I'm not talking Portland. I'm talking in general. You know, it's a tough business, and there aren't excuses. You know, the, the job is to get the job done, and the job is to build a really good team. And that should also be the fun. And uh, you, you should enjoy doing it. You should work really hard. And uh, and to do that, you're going to have to take some chances, take some risks, and they're not all going to pay off, and you're going to have to have some thick skin in order to survive that. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you – put a really good team on the court and your fans are excited about the team, uh, it'll be a great experience for everybody. All right. What did you hear there, Stephen, from Bob Witsit? Because I I got a couple of things that I made notes on that jumped out at me. But what do you hear when Witsit is talking about the job? I hear that it is possible to win in Portland, but it's very difficult, and you're going to have to take some risk. And he even said that. you know, you got to take some risk, and some aren't going to work, and some are going to work. But you have to be able and be willing to – make a tough decision. And I think right now the last, you know, 10, 15 years for the Portland Trailblazers, they haven't made any tough decisions. They've just kicked the can along the road and said, you know, we're, we're fine with where we are. We're, you know, we're a playoff team. We got Dame, you know, hopefully we're going to get, you know, lightning in a bottle. We can get a run to the Western conference finals like they did and then get swept by the Warriors. But what Bob Woodson is saying is, is that, that's not good enough to win a championship. If you want to win a championship, you got to make some big time moves that may or may not pay off. It may make some fans mad. It may make fans happy, but you got to make these tough moves, and so it's possible. It's just very tough, and you got to thread that needle, uh, the string through the needle, and it's a really tight, really tight uh, spot to th- thread through.
And he did it, right? I mean, he brought Brian Grant to Portland. He's the guy who convinced Brian Grant that Portland was the right place for him. And, you know, there's a guy who picked Portland. But the free agent signings that I hear Bob Witsit really talking about are kind of the complementary signings. If you look at Witsit's tenure in Portland, he largely took players hostage. And I mean that, you know, with all sincerity. And, you know, he, he traded for players who were under contract and said, you know, here's some guys that wouldn't pick us. We're going to trade for them. Then we'll worry about kind of convincing them to love Portland and, to, and their families to love Portland, and then we'll convince them that this is the right play for, place for them. And he did that. But he mentioned in there fun. He used the word fun. That's the fun of it, kind of building the team, putting a team on the court that the fan base likes and gets excited about. The fun of it hasn't been around for a while. It's been like you know 15 years of not very much fun, and Neil Olshay kind of making excuses at the end of the year. And the Blazers, you know, circulating through six GMs after Witsit from Rich Cho and John Nash and Steve Patterson and Kevin Pritchard and, you know, ultimately to Neil Olshay and, and uh, even Chad Buchanan getting a, getting a cameo in the middle of that. But it hasn't felt like a lot of fun. It has felt like a toothache at times. That's why it's our plan. If I give it to the media, then it's 29 other teams' plan. So we have a strategy. We told you, we told you guys at, at exit meetings we have contingencies for all of our free agents. Um, we, we have three roster-building tools. We have draft, trade, and free agency. We've had two of them at our disposal. We made a trade that we really like. It in no way indicates anything that may or may not go on come July 1st. That, that's not fun. Fans don't get excited about that. That's excuse-making and, hey, we have a plan, but we're not going to share it with you. And, you know, at the end of the year, uh, people, uh, you know, him getting upset that, that fans wanted changes in the roster as far back as 2016, 2017, 2018. There seems to be an upswell among some fans that want, you know, sweeping changes. How do you do? You see this as a more of a tweak, tweaking the roster this summer, or, or making the same people that wanted sweeping changes last year? Well, I don't know. I don't know them personally. I <laughs> just hear from them all the time. Right. Great. Well, you know, last year was going to take sweeping changes because we got we got swept by Golden State in the first round, and all the alarmists overreacted, and then Golden State went on to sweep Utah, and sweep San Antonio, and basically, you know, win in five without breaking a sweat against Cleveland. And everybody overreacted. So let's be a little bit measured in our reaction to the fact that we ended up against a tough matchup with the best two-way player in the NBA having a career series. Drew is healthy, and he played phenomenal basketball. It happens. There you go. No, no sweeping changes after all. But, yeah, yeah, the, the franchise did need changes. It got stale. The roster got stale. It got played out. GM's gone now. New coach. Here's my problem, though, is I was listening to Bob Witsit's talk earlier. He was talking about fun. The fun's not been there. I also think uh, the Blazers need to approach next Thursday with that in mind. Let's, let's see if this franchise can find a way to be fun next Thursday. And, and if that's drafting a good young player and bringing him in and putting him alongside Shaden Sharp and Damian Lillard in the lineup and letting it rip, good. Uh, you know, and what else can you do in free agency? And what other tweaks can you make with the roster via trade? Uh, awesome. Let's have some fun with this. The other thing is he mentioned uh, risks. You're going to have to take some risks, and you're going to have to take. You're going to have to have thick skin. It take risk taking in a general manager seat requires two things. One, it requires uh, somebody who's not risk averse to be the general manager, 
Secondarily, it requires some job security. You, you see some GMs that will take some risks between now and, and Thursday night and, and make some moves and go for it. And, you know, no trade or no draft pick comes without risk. But I wonder with Joe Cronin and very little job security and Burt Cold sitting on his shoulder, I wonder if he has the kind of uh, atmosphere that is, con- you know, conducive to risk taking. I, I want to ask you, John. You talk about fun. What can make it where it's not going to be fun on Thursday night? Is it if they make a trade for a veteran player that we feel like doesn't move the needle? Is that yes. the only way it's only going to not be fun? I think if they make a trade for a veteran player that doesn't make the team markedly better, it's going to be. It's going to fly. The narrative will be that it's underwhelming. That it was a movement to pacify Damian Lillard and keep some seats. Some people in the seats inside Moda Center, you know, they want to get eighteen or twenty thousand people in there, uh, and and keep eighteen or twenty thousand people in there, and they don't want to run the risk of you know going young and be you know it's like Brian Windhorst said this week. He said you know the dirty little secret is that the Blazers have been busy rebuilding and nobody's really talking about it. You know, Lillard's the only piece out there that isn't really part of the rebuild, and so I, I think if they if they make a trade to pacify Damian Lillard that is underwhelming, and they mortgage part of their future for it, that's not going to feel fun to me. That's going to feel like a uh, you know, short-term Band-Aid, give up, step back. You know, it was the safe, easy thing to do. You know, it, I, think, I think there's a little risk involved with making the pick at three. And if, and if it's Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, like, you know, there's some risk there, A, in that you're drafting a young player and saying, hey, you're part of our future. We think we want to see more of you. But we kind of think, and all right, let's see this this young player blossom like Shaden Sharp did in the last year, and Damian Lillard did once upon a time. I, that's I, yeah, it's the first part. But the second part of risk is though that you're risking alienating Lillard a little bit by picking a player there, and I'm okay with that. I actually think that's kind of fun. I think it would be good for Damian Lillard to be a little uncomfortable and look around and go, "Hey, I'm the oldest guy here who can play." And uh, how am I going to make this work? And you know what? Guess what? Just like when older players mentored you, Dame, you are going to be in that position. And this is the thing, John. I mean, the Blazers have been so bad the last two seasons. They have to take a risk. Like, if you don't take a risk, what are you doing? You're just bringing it back to what it's been the last two years, which has turned into tanking. And I think if they do end up trading for an underwhelming veteran, again, it's not risky. You know exactly what you're going to get out of that player. It's not going to be any better. And, you know, best case scenario, you make the play in probably. And, and, and for me, I think there's so much possibilities with the draft pick, whether it is a trade for you know a younger star like Zion, if he's available, that's a big time risk. But you know what? That's going to bring excitement to the franchise. You draft Scoot Henderson, you draft Brandon Miller. That's excitement. And I'm with you. It's got to be fun. There's got to be some excitement. And I think I think and I want to believe that Joe Cronin understands that. But I got you know It remains to be seen what the ownership's going to do. The the other question is is Joe Cronin the one making the decision, right? Because here's a guy who he's a real good story, came up through the franchise, intern to to general manager, and you know I I do worry a little bit that the bulk of his professional experience in the NBA has come in a with a franchise that has no proof of performance. Like you know where did he learn? Who did who mentored him? Uh, you know, what lessons did he learn? Like, I, there, I, I do believe you can learn from watching somebody bumble along and make mistakes. Like, maybe he learned something from Neil Olshay. But I also think, like, I wish that Joe Cronin had a little more experience 
and a little more profile because I think then he might be able to stand in that draft room and push back against the faction that is, you know, running this team behind the scenes. I believe Burt Cold is, you know, his fingerprints are all over the roster last season. Wasn't good. And I'm kind of wondering if Burt is going to fashion himself as the de facto general manager on Thursday. And you talk about risk and just be able to take that risk. I, I think a lot of it in the NBA especially has to do with experience. And, you know, if you're Danny Ainge and you've been around for a long time, you can take a risk and make a mistake, and people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Sam Presti in Oklahoma City, he can make a mistake. And people are going to believe him if Joe Cronin, you know, takes that risk and it doesn't pay off, or he doesn't take a risk and it doesn't pay off. He may not get another chance, so that may go into his mind and say, you know what, I'm going to be the, you know, the most uh, risk adverse and just not try to be risky and hang on to my job for another year or two, and hopefully I get lucky some other way. The best, the, the, I think, the best thing that could happen on Thursday for the Blazers, in my mind, my by my view, would be to draft Scoot Henderson at number three. And if you don't want to pick at 23 and 43, the message you could send to Damian Lillard is by packaging those two picks together, maybe with some other piece of your roster, and then trying to upgrade using 23, 43, and maybe a player on your roster that that would pacify Damian Lillard and make your team a little bit better next season. Because I just don't think you're going to get a difference maker at 23, at 43, you're going to get a project. Everybody loves those picks in the second round. You get a project there. But I think if you're the Blazers, maybe you pick at three. If you get Scoot Henderson, you say, hey, Dame, we think this guy can help us win right away. It's not that unusual in this league to see a player come in and contribute right away if they're a good star player. But could you package 23 and 43 and maybe a piece on your roster that could make you more game ready next season? And I think that, to me, is the compromise you have to sell Lillard on, you know. Uh, and by the way, uh, I think I think Scoot Henderson, like you know, I'm not a scout, but everybody I talk to says he's more NBA ready than people are giving him credit for. Um, and I and I think he's probably more NBA ready than Brandon Miller. He's the second-best prospect in the class, right? I mean, if you get him at three, you have to pick him. And the thing about Scoot is he's played two years in the G League at a younger age than a lot of people are. So you could be right. He could be ready to go. And, you know, what you kind of look at, you read about it, his second season, it was more of a down season than what people thought it was going to be. Still had a great season, but a little down. And he's saying, well, you know what, maybe he's just trying to get ready for the NBA. Like, he's not really going all out. He doesn't care anymore. Like, he's good enough to be in the NBA. And that could be a thing as well. Like, I think both these guys, Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller, are you know going to be able to contribute day one. Are they going to be stars? No. Are they going to be a really good player on a playoff team? Probably not in year one because rookies just don't do that very often. And so that's what I would say. And you talk about the later picks, the pick 23. If the Blazers are to trade that, they can get a veteran that can help if they're trying to like build for this season. Could you use Anthony Simons and the 23 pick? to get something that would pacify Damian Lillard? That's the question. Def definitely. I want, I want him to pick at three. Definitely. I agree with you. I want the pick at three. I mean, you look at how, what they got Jeremy Grant for. It was basically like pick 23. It's going to be a late first-round pick, and that's what they got Jeremy Grant for. So I think there's going to be teams out there that are already, you know, not necessarily tanking, but really you know, willing to get rid of a veteran for that late first-round pick and to help Damian Lillard out that way. And I, th I think that's the way to go. The, the pass on the third pick, I think – is just crazy. Basically, like in the last 12 seasons of the NBA, it's a 50-50 chance of being an all-star at pick three. 
you're going to pass that? You're going to pass up on that? It's you just, don't do that. You don't you do know, that. You, you know. can't do that. And so for me, like you got to hang on to that three pick, and then you can make moves after that if you're trying to you know, please Dame. And I think you can get guys that can help later on if you make a trade because those those value picks are you know in the 20s. Those are valuable to, to yeah. younger teams. Yeah, and I think it, everyone's been talking about the three pick. I'm more and more convinced that the Blazers are going to keep that pick. And what we should be talking about is 23 and Amphrey Simons. Because if you can take a player who had, you know, he had the best season of his career last year, uh, averaging 21 points a game and played 62 games. And, you know, he had some moments that kind of suggested Amphrey Simons can can help somebody in this league. You, you use Amphrey and you use the 23 pick to get a little older. And to ensure Dame that he's not going to be surrounded by young guys, right? Like, in, and I think that's the that's the play, that's the play. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. And what's your phone calls? You a Blazer fan? Are you excited? Do you have confidence? What do you want them to do next Thursday? 503-417-7575. It's your turn. It's a happy Friday. I want to hear from Blazer fans. What do you want your team to do next Thursday? I am predicting a lot of smoke, uh, a lot of discussion, rumors next week. Probably Tuesday, Wednesday will be spent with a bunch of rumors. Then ultimately, I think when the Blazers get up to select at number three, they will take Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, who is there. I do think they will look to trade the 23 pick. I expect some kind of trade from them on Thursday, but not involving number three. What do you want the team to do? What would get you excited about being back at the arena? 503-417-7575 is a number. D is in Portland. D, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Happy Friday. Happy weekend. Um, what I want us to do is uh, not get stuck in that trend where we're 8th, 7th, 6th seed. You know how Neil Orsha's whole tenure, besides that one year that he got so cocky because we got to the Western Conference Finals, and then it just flamed out. And uh, whatever we do, we got to figure out not to do that. So if we can't get like an all-star, like a legit all-star, Brown, Brandon Ingram, maybe Zion, Brown, uh, then you just keep the pick. You know, it, it, it just doesn't – it's not smart just to go for, you know, eighth, seventh, sixth seed. I uh, just – hopefully we do it right, but – I've been calling your show a lot of times, and it's all about the ownership and the management. I have no faith in them. (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you, D, in Portland. Um, You know, he talked about Neil Olshay getting cocky. I don't know if it was cocky. I think he he just kind of skews mildly arrogant that way anyway, like if we're just being real. That's not a crime. It's just who he is. Probably some of that made him good at his job, and some of it made it obnoxious. But – Here's the thing with Olshay. I don't really think he was trying maniacally to make the team better. I don't think he was into risk-taking at all. I think he was very calculated in the moves he made. He preferred to make smaller moves. He liked to use their exceptions. He liked to use, uh, you know, second-round picks. He, you know, I didn't see big, splashy, risky moves from Neil Olshay. And, I, and in part because I think he was mostly focused on making sure he was protecting his own career. And I think that was part of what held the team back, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. I think it held the team back. He was focused on making sure he got another contract. He didn't make a bad trade, played it very safe, 
uh, and crafted a narrative that, you know, everything was all right. We know what we're doing. You guys don't. You're all stupid. But uh, in the end, it, it was like a dog chasing its own tail. 503-417-7575 is the number. Josh in Vancouver. Josh, what do you want this team to do? Man, John, hey, first let me say uh, to you and everybody there, like, happy Father's Day. I uh, hope you have a wonderful weekend with your family. Uh, I'll continue to say to you each time I call in, I super appreciate you. I appreciate you in our market and, you know, the things that you do and the things you bring awareness to and the topics that you give us uh, a platform to share with you uh, to, to discuss some of the things that a lot of us people in this region are passionate about. So, you bet. Um, thank you. So, uh, but listen, man, I'm super, super nervous about this draft, and here's why. Uh, I, I, this, this draft, this one draft, could literally set Portland's franchise back a decade if they blunder this thing. And the reason that I say that is is because right now Damian Lillard's value is never going to be higher. What I would really prefer to see happen is I, I love Damian Lillard. I wish Portland could win with Damian Lillard. I don't think Damian Lillard is going to see that. I don't think he's going to get that, and I don't currently think that the things that need to happen to make Damian Lillard uh, a living legend because of winning here is going to happen. His legacy is not going to change. It's cemented, and Portland's um, the anvils of history of the Portland Trailblazers for as long as he lives. Uh, so I think because now his value is what it is, you need to trade him and prepare for the future. I think Victor Wimbiamba, I think he has the highest ceiling, but I think Miller and Henderson are better ready now NBA players, and they ultimately could be better pros long term because I think they both have better bodies for it. Uh, so I would love to see them keep the pick, take one of those two guys, trade Damian Lillard and start making maneuvers to build for the future. I have zero confidence any of that will happen. And, you know, the previous caller was mentioning arrogance. The one guy I've got concerns about with arrogance and all of this is Burt Cole. And what yeah. I'm worried about in his arrogance is, is that he's going to make a horrendous move thinking and he's trying to convince everybody he's the smartest guy in the room and the smartest guy in the league, and he's going to blunder this thing, and it's going to set us back for a long time. Thanks, John. Have a good weekend, brother. We'll talk yeah. soon. I think it's a real risk. I do. I think it's a real risk. I would love to get Burt Cold on this show. He won't pop his head up. He won't reply to messages. He won't... Uh, uh, he won't make an appearance on this show. I've invited Burt Cold on the show numerous times. I doubt he will ever do it. I uh, haven't spoken to him in Get years. Get him on the show. I've tried. I have tried. I would also love to get Jody Allen on the show. I would love to have her come on the program and explain, you know, what is her plan for this franchise. Like, for crying out loud, you got a bunch of fans. You're asking them to do season ticket renewals. And at the same time... You won't tell anybody what's the plan for the franchise. Get her on the show. I'd love to. My uh, requests to Vulcan Inc. have largely been met with, oh, she's not available, or oh, she's going to pass at this time. That's her prerogative, but I'd love to have a conversation with her, and I think fans would love to hear from her. Uh, do you have a concern, Stephen, that Bert is going to be running the show, that Bert's ego is going to infect Thursday? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think that's just because, you know, as a Blazer fan, you kind of know that madness is going to happen and you don't actually know who's running the show. And it could be one of those situations where 
Bert, you know, he wants to hold that power and he wants to say, you know what, I want to make these decisions. That's what Paul Allen did. Paul Allen wanted to make decisions. I want to be like Paul. But you know what, Bert, you're not. You're not like Paul Allen. So, yes, there is that fear in the back of your mind that this could go really badly if Bert Cold and Jody Allen really want to put their fingerprints on it. And, you know, to Josh's point, like, this is a really important draft. I think Thursday is so important for the franchise that if they do it wrong and it's bad, it could set the franchise back five years, six years. But if they do it right, it could be you know help them out this very next season. I, I really do think that it's that drastic the way they have their roster with all the money it distributed, uh, having the third pick in the draft with the players that are going to be available. I think this draft is so important, and I think you're right. Like Everybody should be a little bit worried that Burt Cole's going to put his fingerprints on it. You just got to hope and you got to have faith that uh, he's not going to, but there's no, there's no way you can be a hundred percent sure that he won't do it. Yeah. And I think it's a real risk. Your fears and your hopes as a Blazer fan, 503-417-7575. All right, Stephen, I've asked you what, what, uh, you know, I, you want the franchise to do. Tell me what you don't want them to do. Is there a, Hey, they absolutely can't when it comes to Thursday or maybe the events between now and next Thursday, if they're going to make a deal. Yeah. yeah I would say the only thing that I don't really want is the trade is a trading that third pick for not a star player or not a, not a player that is like not the headline player being a playoff success. You know, I've seen some rumors out there of guys being out there that are available that could be in this trade that haven't had success in the playoffs or haven't been a go-to player in the playoffs. I, I don't want that. I, I I want them to draft a player at three. If they are to trade it, it's got to be for someone that is proven to be a really good player in the postseason because what's the point of having a guy that can play in the regular season and not the postseason? I don't care about fit. I don't care about role players right now. The Blazers need to upgrade their talent anywhere. And so I want to see that. Um, for me right now, there's only one player that I think is available that I would be really on board with the Blazers trade for him. That's Zion. Uh, he's the only guy that I would want. I think that is the home run risk that you want to take. If it hits and he you know learns how to get in shape, this that that's the type of player that you can have on your team that helps you elevate. Do you give up three one. for a guy that you're not sure can get in shape? I mean, yes. you're willing to do that? Yes, I am. Do do the Pelicans do that? That's the question. You know, I, I don't I, think I, so. I don't know. I don't know right now because they seem to like Trey Murphy. They seem to like Brandon Ingram, and maybe they're just tired of Zion's act right now. I, I you know, there's there's talks that he is available. There's talks that he's not. I, I he's the only guy though, John, that I want. And I know Jalen Brown's been talked about. Mikael Bridges. Those guys, they don't do it for me. Zion is the one difference maker I want. If they can't get him, draft no matter what. Whether that's Brandon Miller, whether that's Scoot Henderson, whether it's Amen Thompson. I want any of those guys. I think those are the high upside picks that you take. You can't, you cannot trade the third pick for a guy who is just a fringe all-star or just a fringe star in the league. You got to take it and you got to hope that they turn into hall of fame type level players. And that's where Zion is. That's where, you know, Brandon Miller, Scoot Henderson could eventually be not that they're guaranteed it, but that's where they could be at one point in their career. It's interesting because when you look at, you know, Zion, he's drafted in 2019 and the Pelicans general manager that picked him is, you know, Trajan Langdon, who is, you know, was just fresh on the job. And for that reason, I don't think the Pelicans give up on him because, you know, you have a player who, you know, was picked by the general manager who's still sitting. There is, you know, I wanted him in 2019. I still believe in him now uh, mentality that happens. And so while I think the Pelicans would part ways with Zion for the right price. I don't know if they'd do it for the three pick. 
And, you know, maybe it's not enough. And it's the stock market analogy. I mean, you know, buy low, sell high. I mean, they yeah. are they are selling at the lowest. Pennies on the dollar. Yes. Pennies on the dollar. Giving away the guy who was unanimously would have been the number one pick, anybody picking that year in 2019. You're giving him away, what, four years later, and you're going, you know what, we're going to give him away for the third pick. A guy who is a literal one of one and averaging yeah. 26 points, seven rebounds, shooting over 60% for his career as a 22-year-old. Like that doesn't I'm not come... closing the door on him yet. I, I'm, not, too young. I'm not either, He's but that's what I'm young. saying. If, if they are for some reason, I think if you're Portland, you, you try to bounce on that. Let's go to truck driver Ken who's called in. Ken, what do you want to happen? Just one thing, I think. The whole world would become unicorns and rainbows. Trade Jody Allen for Phil Knight. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love that. That makes me happy. Thank is, you for saying is that. Is Phil Knight going to be available with the third pick? <laughs> Can you get Phil Knight at number three? Uh, should I tweet that right now? How, how, how happy would Blazer fans, how, how happy would they be? Tony's in Portland. Tony, welcome to the program. Tony, what do you want to see happen? Dude, I've been stoked if that would happen. I, I was that was brilliant. Uh, like I'm ready to move on from Dame. Uh, I'm looking at him at his highest value right now. Um, you know, aside from him, we've pretty much rebuilt this team, anyways. I'd like to see Scoot at three, and whatever draft picks we can get for Dame, uh, maybe uh, put alongside that with a veteran point guard to kind of help these young uh, guards out and, and 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 rebuild around that. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I, look, I think you're reasonable. Will people show up, though, Tony? Will you show up to the arena if they're not very good, they're young, but, hey, you could go, hey, in two years, this team might be really good and Dame won't be part of it, but will you show up to, uh, you know, root for a Chalupa and see the guys grow? I wish they were giving Chalupas away. That was, that was good. <laughs> but, yeah, Shaden Sharp is ridiculous, man. That guy, I was only watching towards the end of the, you know, the final tanks there because, because you know, because of Shaden. Because, uh, I just wanted to see what that guy could do. So, yeah, he's exciting. Uh, I mean, he's already in, in one of the NBA commercials. I forget which one, but I was like, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. So, uh, no, I think he's an exciting young player, and I think Scoot Henderson's going to bring more of that, and, and I think you can sell that. Uh, I really I really do, and I do not want anything to do with Zion Williams. Like, that guy's already proven that he can't, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't care that much about basketball, and his body's, you know, like Greg Oden's just probably just too big for – you know, to stay healthy. So um, yeah, I up too. I mean, I feel like he's struggling with maturity and a whole bunch of other things. I'm also interested to see what happens to Victor Wembanyama over the next two or three years. I, I know we all are because he has been billed as this generational talent. You know, maybe it's uh, you know maybe he is. Maybe it's somebody else's turn to have uh, you know a bust at number one. Maybe that's this is Greg Popovich. You know, it finally runs out on him. I don't know. John, I want to ask you another quick question here. You know, we, we've talked about Scoot Henderson so much of being the second overall or the third overall pick. I'm sorry, and coming to Portland just because of the Hornets and Lamelo Ball. But you know, as a guy who checks the uh, the betting lines, this has changed a lot in the last yeah. day. Um, you know, yesterday Brandon Miller was a heavy favorite to be the number two overall pick. Now him and Scoot are basically tied odds wise to be the number two overall pick, and Brandon Miller is actually the favorite to be the third pick. If for some reason Scoot Henderson goes two, which is very possible because he's that good of a prospect, do our minds change? And not having that point guard, you know, to fill in for Dame, do do you still want the Blazers to draft a Brandon Miller who is a wing? I player? do, I do, because it's been a decade that the Blazers have been looking for that wing, and here he is. So I think you pick Brandon Miller and you go, okay, we've now we finally addressed the need that you know how long have they been looking for a three? <laughs> You know, forever. Like, yeah, it, it's been a decade. And so I don't think there's a, a wrong decision here 
for the Blazers, except if they trade out and move back and get a marginal player. Like Brandon Miller, Scoot Henderson, they work for me. I think they work for the short-term, long-term health of the franchise. You pick the best player at three. There's three players in this draft that are head and shoulders above everybody else in the eyes of the scouts. If you ask a scout, hey, you know, I give you a top two. Of course, everybody wants the one pick, but I give you, uh, you know, a top three pick. You know, uh, their their minds start to lose interest when you say, okay, how about four, five, six? You know, there's three players in this draft that everybody loves, and the Blazers are sitting at three. Uh, Joe Cronin said that shortly after they landed the three pick. So I'm picking if I'm the Blazers. And, and Brandon Miller was in Portland today uh, working out for the Blazers. We'll play his sound. What did he say? We'll play it coming up next. I appreciate being able to come on this radio show and talk about uh, the nuances of like what the Blazers should do with the third pick. My uh, my daughters are not so much interested in that stuff right now. I don't know about uh, your household, uh, Stephen, uh, as the draft approaches, but uh, it won't be until draft day that the kids get excited and go, okay, what are they going to do? Uh, but I like being able to have this conversation. Some news in the Pac-12 footprint today. Um it was uh, reported by ESPN that San Diego State has sent a letter to the Mountain West Conference, not a letter notifying the conference that they would like to opt out of the conference. It wasn't that notification letter that we've all kind of been anticipating or waiting for. But it was a letter that said that San Diego State intended to send a letter of notification. It was really kind of clumsy. It was, it was sloppy, really. Because then what ensued was a back and forth between the Mountain West Conference and San Diego State, where Mountain West Conference is going, we're not going to help you out. We're not here to, we're not here to uh, allow you to uh, bend the rules. Because San Diego State was asking if they could get an extension of 30 days. I find that interesting. Because it dovetails with what I reported this morning at johnconzano.com. I was writing about San Diego State and how they are positioning to leave the Mountain West Conference and how SMU is quietly plotting as well. If you want to read it, go to johnconzano.com and read it. But I'll give you just a tidbit that I think is interesting that it was worth talking about here in this context. I spoke to a member of the Pac-12 CEO group this morning who told me there is no timeline for the Pac-12 right now. Because I was asking about June 30th, because we've been talking all about it. Hey, San Diego State has to inform the conference. They have until June 30th. And the response from a Pac-12 CEO group member came back, there's no pressure, there's no timeline. And I followed up, and I was told I can't help you on that front, which told me I have to go do additional reporting. So I reached out to San Diego State. I reached out to the Mountain West Conference. I reached out to other members of the CEO group. I started asking questions like, hey, what am I missing? What is it about San Diego State and the Pac-12 that I'm missing? And I found the answer, and I wrote about it. It's part, like I wrote about 20 other things that involve San Diego State and SMU, if you want to read it. But it's part of what I wrote today is that San Diego State could inform and probably will inform the Mountain West Conference that they are leaving. They haven't done it officially yet. They haven't been invited to the Pac-12 yet. But they will probably inform the Mountain West Conference here in the next 14 days that they are leaving and opting out. And they may do so without an official offer to the from the Pac-12. Now, I had viewed that prior to today as a huge risk. Like, why would they do that? Why would they 
opt out not knowing where if they have somewhere to land. Well, it turns out there's some precedent for this. San Diego State did it, in fact, in 2012. Thirteen years ago, they informed the Mountain West Conference they were opting out. They were joining the Big East Conference. Anybody remember that? Raise your hand if you do. Very few of you probably do. Because it wasn't at a time where we were all tuned into media rights. San Diego State opted out, said it was joining the Big East, and then later went, nah, I don't think so, and reapplied for inclusion in the Mountain West Conference. They were allowed to come back. They were allowed to come back into the conference. So I am told that the Pac-12 knows that San Diego State is likely opting out anyway and expects to be invited by the Pac-12. There's been no formal invitation from the Pac-12, I am told. Pac-12 has not invited San Diego State, has not invited SMU. Now, I reached out to SMU as well, and I am told that SMU has been in contact with the Pac-12 conference. I believe SMU and San Diego State are both likely to end up in the Pac-12 conference. Why do I believe this? Well, because I keep getting told by Pac-12 sources that they're confident that they're going to get to $31.6 million or better in their media rights distribution numbers. And you can't get there unless you add two more teams, because you need the inventory in football and in basketball, and you can't get there without Southern California and a media market like Dallas-Fort Worth. Dallas-Fort Worth has 3 million TV households. It would immediately become the biggest market in the Pac-12 conference. You're losing Los Angeles, 5.7 million TV households. You're replacing it with 4.1 million if you add back Dallas, Fort Worth, and San Diego. That's why it works. That's why I think this is what, what's going to happen. I wrote more about it. I went into much more detail at johnconzano.com. If you subscribe, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. If you subscribe, you know what I'm talking about. But I think it's really interesting to kind of watch what is going on right now. I did reach out to the American Athletic Conference. That's where SMU plays. Spokesperson for the conference told me that the bylaws of that conference call for a $10 million payment and 27 months notice for a school to withdraw from the American Athletic Conference. Uh, okay, I reported that, tweeted it, but then subsequently went and investigated the departure of Houston and some others from that conference. Houston did something interesting. They paid an $18 million exit and didn't, didn't have to wait 27 months. And, in fact, the $18 million is spread out over 12 years. So the American Athletic Conference is in business and will make deals. And I believe SMU is in play for the Pac-12, regardless of what anybody else is telling you. I believe they are. I believe the Pac-12 wants to get into Texas. I believe the Pac-12 wants SMU at the right number. And I believe it wants San Diego State at the right number. And I think both of those things are serious, and I think we are in the eighth or ninth inning of this negotiation. Let's go to the phone lines. People want to talk about the Blazers. Harry's in Vancouver. Harry, what do you want the Blazers to do? Well, being that they're looking at the somewhat injured player Zion, why don't they consider Chad Holcomb? Maybe we could get him cheaper than number three. You think he's out there to be had? I mean, he was the number two pick in last year's draft. Oklahoma City... 
Stephen, are, is Oklahoma City soured on Chet, or you know, are they kind of where the Blazers were in like year two of Greg Oden's tenure? I I don't know exactly how they feel, but I think that they because they're farther along than I thought they would be. Right? They made the play in this last season, and that was a that was a you know before the schedule, so. It may be one of those situations where they look at Chet and they say, you know what, this guy may never stay healthy, and we're mm. not that far away. So to that caller's point, like he may be available and it may be something to explore. Now, I'm not a big Chet Homer guy. I don't know. I don't think that he's going to be that great in the NBA, but if the Blazers feel that way, he may be out there and may be available because I think the Thunder are just a little farther along than they thought they'd be. Yeah. I, uh, I wonder if, you know... Uh if Chet Holmgren could be had. I just I, I think teams have a hard time when they pick somebody, number one, number two. I think they have a hard time letting go of them. And, you know, I had a listener, a friend of mine, Derek, who uh, we were talking about Zion earlier. I'm not with you, Stephen, quite. I'm not quite as enthusiastic about Zion. My friend uh, Derek pointed out that Zion, his weight's an issue. Like, <laughs> yes. that's a major issue. He basically called him a, a beignet. You know, he said he's a he's a he's a beignet in sticker in sneakers. I, I can't. I, there's nothing I can say to deny that, right? Like we've all seen him out there. We've all seen the pictures, and, and it is a is a definite concern, um, for sure. And you know, he was out here in Portland, and he was working out, trying to get healthy again. And uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just I'm willing to take that risk for a guy because, like you said, those top three picks. They don't come along a lot. So if you're going to trade that pick, you got to get that type of talent. But that's why You want I, Brandon Miller or you want Zion? I'd rather have uh, Zion. I'd take Brandon Miller. I, I think there's less risk there and, and, and lots of upside. Scoot Henderson or Zion, you take Zion as well. Uh, all right, coming up, we'll play Punch It Audio, top of the hour. we got great sound. We'll talk more about the NFL. We haven't talked about the NFL much this week. Plus, uh, the John Morant suspension. Did the NBA get it right? Leave it here. Well, lots to talk about on today's show. I hope you're having a great Friday with all the great weather out there. Kids off for summer in the state of Oregon. How's your summer going, Stephen? Uh, it's going okay right now. The kids uh, have been a little sick, so it's a little frustrating to start the summer that way. But they're getting better. Um, they're pretty fired up for summer, though. They're ready to go. Are they out of school, or they, what, did they, they are, finish yeah. today, or the, what happened? The oldest one finished up yesterday. Nice. Um, finished up second grade, and then the preschooler, he finished nice. up the week before. Awesome. Well, I uh, hope you have a great summer. Thank you. And uh, yeah. I was, I'll was i be glad to report the preschool did not have a whole graduation for them. Oh, good. They just kind of called him up and said, hey, this yeah. guy will be back. And then they gave him a book, which was made they me happy. It's kind of like Blazer's uh, exit interviews. You know, yeah. this guy's coming back. Give this, him a book. This guy's gone. This guy's no longer with the team. Clap him out. Clap him on out. Uh, we're going to play some Punch It Audio coming up. Uh, I want to thank High Caliber Millwrights, Brandon and the team there, for their sponsorship of the Bald Face Truth Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. It'll be taking place June 29th at the Reserve Golf Course in Vineyards. Celebrity golfers will be joining uh, our sponsors and our foursomes to uh, play an afternoon of golf. You'll hear it right here on 750 The Game. It is, uh, it's not the U.S. Open, but it's pretty darn close. I'm excited to, uh, to uh, talk about the U.S. Open on today's show. Uh, great rounds yesterday. Are they holding up today? Have you checked the leaderboard today? I, I you know... I look at the the U.S. Open leaderboard, and I want to see some brand names up there. Yeah, there's uh, there's some headliners up there at the top of the leaderboard right now. Okay, we'll talk about that. Uh, Ricky Fowler going to win this thing? 
I was asking. I, he's never won a major, has he? That is, long, as far as I know. No, and he shot. You know, I mean, he shot sixty-two yesterday. He's been doing, and he's playing well so far today. I think there's a problem if you have like Wyndham Clark and Ricky Fowler up top, and you're headed to Sunday. If you're if you're television for the U.S. Open, yeah, but you got Rory McIlroy sneaking right back there. You need Rory McIlroy. You need Dustin Johnson. Fowler's all right, but you can't have Wyndham Clark be your leader entering Sunday. Oregon graduate, though. Yeah, it's all right. I'm not. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's not going to yeah. draw everybody else to the event. Tune in to see Wyndham Clark tearing up the course. Shot 64 yesterday, 67 today. He's nine under, one back of Ricky Fowler, who is uh, through seven so far at the U.S. Open. That, but that course is playing, Stephen, in a way that tells me my, you and me might be able to break 100 on it. Well, I, that was the thing. Coming into the into the tournament, it was supposed to be really hard. It was supposed to be difficult. They're make, these guys making it look easy. Well, you you watch what happens Saturday and Sunday. The uh, PGA will put a uh, windmill out there on one of those uh, one of those greens. They'll put a stop to that. Put it. <laughs> make sure that nobody's having fun. Damn it! All right, let's play some punch it audio. We got the best sound from all around. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Brandon Miller. He worked out for the Blazers, Alabama, six foot seven inch wing. Here he is talking about his defense punch it i think i've always kind of taken pride on the defense side i think last year i just started taking charges so i have that under my belt that i can tell people now like you know that i've had charges under my belt um i remember in high school i, I never take charges so uh, i was just blocking everybody's shot at the rim so I, I think one thing for me is just giving my body up i think just making winning plays is just i think that separates me i love that he kind of his game has evolved now i never used to take charges now i got that under my belt I've worked on the old charge. Next thing you know, I'll be working on the chest pass, then the bounce pass. Brandon Miller, 6'9". I said 6'7", but 6'9". And, um, you know, a guy that could fall to the Blazers. There's more and more talk about Scoot Miller going maybe number one, but Miller could go second to Charlotte, could end up with the Blazers at three. This is a guy who played one season at Alabama, averaged 18.8 points. But uh, most people, when they talk about Brandon Miller, talk about uh, the crime was committed, the fact that he brought a gun to the scene of a crime. You know, you know. I've talked to people at Alabama in the athletic department, asked them, what do you think, what do you make of Brandon Miller? You know, just to shoot it straight to me. And to a, to a person, everybody says, you know what? He is a good guy. He did do something stupid in bringing a weapon to the scene of a crime. He was not charged with a crime. He was not convicted of a crime. Hopefully he's learned from it. I think there's bigger problems. There may have been a you know a culture or an atmosphere problem in the program at Alabama uh, under it under uh, Coach Oates there this last season. But Brandon Miller, by all accounts, not the problem at Alabama. And so uh, you know, if I'm the Blazers, of course I do my diligence there. But there there seems to be some comfort with Miller, and certainly 
The Blazers have been looking for that six foot nine inch wing for a decade. And, and Here Mil- he comes. And Miller confirmed that the Blazers and teams have talked to him about the incident uh, in Tuscaloosa, and he's you know, answered as much as they can about it because legally he can't really talk about it. Uh, but that clip that you played there, John, about his defense, isn't that what you would love to hear as a Blazer fan? A six nine guy that wants to play defense, wants to sacrifice his body. Like, I'd love that clip because when have the Blazers had anyone that plays defense? They don't. So if you can get the third pick in the draft that has the offensive potential and he was willing to play some defense, that could be a winning combination. I, I love that comment that he makes and that he, you know, he takes pride on that end of the ball because not a lot of guys do. Yeah, and and you know, I am also told like one of the things that a athletic department representative at Alabama told me about Miller was they said, look, he's a cooperating witness, and I didn't know what that meant really because you know I don't hang around the courts and crime, so I reached out to one of my district attorney friends and I said, Eric, give me an idea, cooperating witness, and and they pointed out because I I would think like I assume everybody would be a cooperating witness, but I was told no. He's basically saying, don't subpoena me. I'm happy to come and tell you what I know and has cooperated with authorities there who, are, who of course, are investigating a, a horrific crime uh, involving a weapon that he brought to the scene of the crime. So, you know, uh, Blazers doing their diligence? I hope so. Let's turn and pivot to the Dan Patrick Show. They had Evan Giddings on the show, 95.7 the score in San Francisco. He's talking about the Oakland A's. A's fans, they don't feel good about what's happening with the A's going to Vegas. Punch it. It's, it's been tough because a lot of Oakland A's fans, both in the greater Bay Area along with around the country, a few that I know around the world, feel like they've been spit on, kicked dirt on. And that last see you on the way out the door was something that I think you put appropriately. It was uncalled for. Everyone knows that they're leaving for Las Vegas. Everyone knows that they've been trying to leave for Las Vegas for quite some time. And to hear the commissioner of Major League Baseball essentially give you a swift kick in the rear on the way out didn't exactly feel great. Yeah, Ron Manfred made some comments. He, you know, basically said, hey, it was, you know, somebody asked him about the the 25,000 fans that showed up in Oakland to to reverse boycott. And he said, well, it was nice to see a crowd that was a little bit less than an average crowd by Major League Baseball standards show up. It was a backhanded compliment. Manfred uh, not making fans here. And... I think the A's have been classless. 55 years that franchise has been in Oakland. We get it. You're leaving. What's wrong with acknowledging 55 years of loyalty and progress and memories with the fans in, in Oakland? I don't see the downside if you're the A's. But, you know, they're, they're going out the door, guns blazing, so to speak. Zach Lowe talking about Mike Dunleavy Jr., Portland kid. He will be hired as the Blazers GM, or he is. Punch it. Look, lots of stuff could happen. There's a lot of balls in the air, but if you're asking me to guess right now, my educated guess would be the three foundational guys are back. And this is why the Mike Dunleavy Jr. hire is a big deal. It's a familiar, trusted face to handle those negotiations with Draymond Green on a new deal, on opting in, whatever it is. That's a big deal because there's a trust built there, and that's necessary for a deal like this to be done. Dunleavy named GM of the Warriors, uh, Jesuit high school kid in Beaverton, went to college at Duke, was the uh, number three overall pick, since we're talking about it, in 2002, uh, selected by the Warriors. Uh, now, 
with the Warriors as general manager. Yeah, I, I love the job that he's got. He's been there as a assistant GM. I think he knows the landscape. Good for him. And uh, tip of the cap from people here in the Pacific Northwest as Dunleavy Jr. gets a nice job. Do you think Zach Lowe's on to something, though, by, by bringing in a guy that was already in the organization, the Warriors are going to run it back at least one more yes. season? Yes, 100%. You're, you're not, you know, you have an opportunity here to pivot and go, okay, we're blowing it up. Bob Myers is gone. It kind of suggests to me that Bob Myers is telling the truth when he just kind of said, hey, I'm tired, it's time. I want to go have dinner with my wife, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I do think they're going to run it back, and I think Myers probably was weary with, you know, remember last year started with Jordan Poole and Draymond Green, and there was a lot of drama throughout the course of the season. And, I mean, all that stuff, it's hard enough to be the GM, and then you're dealing with that stuff. So I think he's leaving it in the hands of Mike Dunleavy Jr. Let's see what he does with it. Yeah, and I think you know Draymond has a player option this offseason so he can become a free agent if he'd like. I, I think if you're the Warriors and you want to run it back, Dunleavy's the right guy because he has a relationship with these players and you know they've seen what they can do together. So I think you know you're right. You know there was kind of talk that Draymond could be leaving. Maybe the Warriors didn't necessarily want it, but I think with Dunleavy in there, the Warriors will be back for one more season at least uh, with that core three. Well, the NBA has spoken on John Morant, finally. Suspended him 25 games for the latest gun incident. The Players Association immediately decried that it was excessive and inappropriate. But here's Adrian Wojnarowski on the matter. Punch it. Yeah, it it remains to be seen endorsement-wise. You know, I think you want to keep the ones you have right now. uh, But his ability to get that Supermax deal is based on uh, making All-NBA. He didn't make any of the All-NBA teams this this season. I think certainly the suspension played a part in people's voting, and now he's really already out of the mix for that next year. If, you're suspend- if you miss 18 games now, there's a 65-game minimum that players have to play to make All-NBA, to be MVP, uh, to win Defensive Player of the Year. Well, he's out of consideration now, John Moran is, for any of those postseason Awards so that will kick in with this new collective bargaining agreement. So, in terms of getting that super max versus the max, getting that 230 million plus you talked about, Stephen A., uh, he's not able to get that now. Grizzlies suspended Morant from team activities on May 14th after a video on social media circulated showing the All Star brandishing a firearm. He got an eight game suspension for that. Uh, subsequently, um, he was seen on Instagram Live holding up a handgun uh, in another video. And uh, Adam Silver, not happy with that. Um, the suspension's going to come with conditions as well. It's not just 25 games and come back. But um, prior to his return to play, he'll be required to formulate and fulfill a program with the league that addresses the circumstances that led him to this destructive behavior. They're basically putting him on a parenting plan. He'll also be ineligible to participate in any public league or team activities. Um, he will lose $300,000 per game or about $7.5 million. John Morant said, quote, I've had time to reflect and I realize how much hurt I've caused, end quote. He apologized to the NBA, to the Grizzlies, to his teammates, to the city of Memphis, to Adam Silver, to his agents. He said he was sorry. And uh, but we will see. Ja, seems, seems a balls little, in your court. Little seems a little harsh to me for not even breaking a law. Not am, me. I, am, I, am I wrong on that? I'm, I disagree because I think the NBA's got to have a code of conduct 
It's got sponsors to think about. It has an image to think about. He, you know, he, he's hurting the league. He's hurting the league, and, you know, he's participating in things. And obviously their investigation, you know, it goes further. I mean, it goes to the loading dock in Denver where somebody pointed a laser at somebody else. Like, there's there's obviously a discomfort from the NBA with what is going on here. And, and that's part of his contract, Stephen. I mean, let's, it's in his contract. He's not, you know, he doesn't have to break a law to violate his contract. And... You know, there are a lot of things that people could do in the course of being employed that would be, uh, you know, fireable offenses that aren't breaking the law. But the NBA has got, you know, a, a stance on firearms. And, you know, the NBA said he wielded a firearm knowing that he was being recorded despite having made commitments to the NBA that he would not repeat the conduct. So I think 25, I, I was afraid it was going to be 41. But yeah, I I mean I, I would have been I would have been shocked if it was forty one. That would have seemed really egregious. But I mean twenty five. I guess I I understand I understand where it's coming from. It's it's a bad look, and he lied to Adam Silver. But I mean he didn't he didn't break a law. Like twenty five games, and now it's going to cost him. It could cost him potentially like hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know. It just seems seems like a lot. But you know, hopefully, uh, you know, he learns from those mistakes. Consequences. Yeah. There's consequences. But here's the other thing. Sometimes we see leagues dole out punishments that they know will get walked back. Is it possible that the Players Association and the league both know that here and that the league comes out, looks like it's tough on guns, and then the Players Association comes back out and maybe the suspension gets reduced to 20? Like, you know, I think that that's out there. And, and what we've learned in the NBA when it came to the playoffs, you know, history does matter, and you are right. There, it's not the first incident. If this is the first incident, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 15, but, I mean, there's been the incident with him, you know, punching a, uh, a teenager. There's the Doc incident. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand where the 25 games come from. Ricky Fowler carving up the U.S. Open course. Here's what it sounds like. Punch it. Needs just about one yard. Come on now. First three holes for Ricky Fowler off the charts. Dream round yesterday, dream start today for Fowler. Dang, already won two and three yesterday. Well, it was his back nine yesterday. Ricky Fowler now alone atop the leaderboard. Uh, he threw eight today. He's 11 under, two strokes in front of Oregon's Wyndham Clark, who's nine under. Fowler shot 62 yesterday, blistering opening round. Uh, he is now uh, advanced to 11 under through the first eight holes at the U.S. Open. Um, you know, this is a guy on the PGA Tour who finished second in the Masters, second in the U.S. Open, second in the Open Championship, third in the PGA Championship. That's as close as he has been to winning a major. Um, he's got, you know, he's got a bit of a baby face. He's a name, but he's not a name brand. I don't think this is going to pacify like the golf purists who say, hey, I want a brand name atop the leaderboard come Sunday. But he's a good story. He's a guy who's knocked on the door and been the runner-up in three major championships. And in 2014, he was second in the British Open, second in the U.S. Open, and third in the PGA Championship in the same year. Yeah, And he didn't get a win. So here he is at 11 under. Look out. It's one of those stories where, you know, if you're just a, a fan of sports, 
you hope that this guy can just get over the hump one time, right? The being one so, time. Being so close, man, I can't even imagine that. that. And all in majors, too. Like, that's the thing. It's not these small tournaments. These are the biggest tournaments, and he's right on the doorstep. You hope he can get it through. He, he had a tough start last year, too. He only played one major. He tied for 23rd in the PGA. And, you know, he had a – the first three tournaments of last year, he missed the cut. I'm looking here, you know, he, he, he had a bad year. But, you know, he fired his swing coach. He hired Butch Harmon. And, you know, towards the beginning of this year, he's just been better. And, you know, he uh, – and, by the way, he moved from Las Vegas to Florida. Get out of Vegas, Ricky. You know, A's fans will love you for that. That's Punch It Audio, best sound from all around. Good stuff there. I want to replay the Brandon Miller cut that I played earlier in Punch It Audio. Here is the the guy that could fall to the Blazers at three, Alabama wing Brandon Miller. I think I've always kind of taken pride on the defense side. I think last year I just started taking charges, so I have that under my belt that I can tell people now, like, you know, that I have charges under my belt. Um, I, I remember in high school I, I never take charges. Uh, I was just blocking everybody's shot at the rim. So I, I think... One thing for me is just giving my body up. I think just making winning plays is just—I think that separates me. There you go. Uh, you like the defense. I think it's kind of funny that he's now like, well, I—I uh, I now have the charges under my belt. Like he's going down his bucket list of things that he needs to do. Yeah, I got the charges. Uh, next, I'll—I'll uh, I'll work on the bounce pass. I mean, I love the defensive comment. Twenty-seventh, thirtieth, twenty-ninth, and twenty-eighth. You know what that is, John? The defensive rating for the Blazers the last four years. Yeah. Please get it better than that. So you know, I, I'm down. It is funny though because it's like it's almost like he's saying, you know, I was too good in high school to take charges. I didn't have to do that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But now, you know, now I'm on the same level as these other guys. I gotta, you know, up my game a little bit. I'm gonna have to learn how to uh, take a charge here in this league. Uh, here's the other thing too. Um, you mentioned the defensive rating. You know, Terry Stotts got a lot of the blame for the Blazers not being a very good defensive team during his tenure. And justifiably so. They didn't rate as a good defensive team. But I also thought maybe there was a chance that he didn't have good defensive players. Like, you know, did, is it possible that Stotts could talk about defense? But, you know, he had an undersized backcourt with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard. There was definitely a offense-first mentality going on in Portland. You know, maybe outside of like a Wesley Matthews and a Nick Batum at a different time, were there very good defensive players on that team? In the Stotts era, they had the season that they lost to the Grizzlies when they traded for Aaron Aflalo, and then Wesley Matthews uh, ruptured his Achilles. They were eighth in the NBA in defense in that season. Um, and so that was by far their best. And then the year that they uh, lost to the Pelicans, I believe they were 12th when they got swept in the first round. They were the 12th best defense. When they got to Western Conference Finals, it was like 16. So it wasn't even like a great defense then. And those are by far the best defenses Terry Stotts ever had. So I think it's a combination of both. Like, he's definitely an offensive coach, but I think there's a lot of blame you can put on the roster and the roster construction. I, I think it's I think people underestimate just how bad some of these defensive players are on the Blazers just from the roster standpoint, some guys don't. Some guys just aren't good on defense, and I think Blazers have a lot of them. You got the BFT statewide. So much more ahead. Five at five coming up, top of the hour. My Saturday mailbag uh, comes out every Saturday at johnconzano.com. You got a question for the mailbag? Well, you can go on Facebook to the Bald Face Truth Facebook page, or you can uh, go to my Twitter at BFT. I tweeted out this morning. Uh, a, uh, I guess a solicitation of questions uh, for people who want to ask questions. I get good questions there. People ask me things like, you know, hey, what wineries do you recommend in Oregon? These are out-of-town college football fans. And then I get a chance to go, you know what? I have a couple of wineries there, a couple of few wineries that I like. I like uh, 
I like Stoller. Uh, I like to sit on the lawn out there. Anna and I would bring the kids out there, the, the Stoller Winery, the Stoller family. They do a good job with that. We like Oswego Hills Winery in West Lynn. Same thing. They got a, There's a theme here to my to my picks. They're very family-friendly wineries. They got a big lawn there, and uh, Derek uh, Lawrence and his family run that winery. And anytime you're in there, you, you bump into his kids who are working there, and it's a big family kind of operation. Kind of cool to see that thing happening. And uh, also I like a couple other wineries like uh, Styring. The dude out at Styring Winery. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur, but I'll go. I'll go to wineries, and I like what I like. Like, I don't necessarily know the difference. Like, if you give me two glasses of wine, I'm not going to be able to tell you which one is, uh, you know, the uh, $8 bottle of wine and which one's the $80 bottle of wine. That's not me. But I'll tell you what. The dude who is out at Styring Winery out in uh, Dundee or out in Newburgh or wherever that is, uh, he will walk you around his vineyard, and he will introduce you to every grape. If you have the time and he'll talk to you about how he prunes them and what and he loves his grapes he loves those plants and if you're into the geeking out on that that's your guy uh, uh, there's another winery called Durant uh, that was also a family one like like Stephen you could bring your kids they you know they have like ice cream and stuff for the kids while you and the wife are uh, you know enjoying wine or whatever uh, not not owned by Kevin Durant but they are big listeners of the show as well, and I'm always uh, when I do my wine tasting. That's how I that's how I do it. I support those who support the show. So thank you to those wineries. But I get good questions. That was where I was really starting with this. I get great questions, and one of the questions that I got from a listener was about summertime activities. What summer sports did you play as a kid? How did you spend your time in the summer? Now, Stephen, I want to pepper you with this one. And I want to pepper our listeners, too. When I asked that question, when I just read that question about, you know, your summertime activities as a kid, what popped into your mind? And is it the kind of stuff that kids still do today? Because I have noted, and we have talked about it on this show, that I don't believe kids are hanging out at playgrounds, playing football, playing basketball, playing baseball like I did in my childhood. They are not organizing themselves anymore. And I think part of that is because we have them so damn busy with this cottage industry that is youth sports. We have kids that are out there, uh, you know, going, hey, man, I'm practicing three days a week. I'm playing travel ball. I'm playing games on Thursdays and Saturdays or Sundays in some cases. And, you know, I don't feel like going to the playground and, and, and playing a game of pickup with my friends because the adults have me so busy playing games that I need a break from it. I'll play video games. Uh, so what, is, what are those activities that you used to do in the summertime as a kid. 503-417-7575. For me, this is what we used to do. All right, I lived a couple miles from town, so to speak, but I could ride my bike. And I would often call my friends and I'd say, hey, I'll be at the elementary school that we went to when we grew up. I'll be there, I'm gonna ride my bike there. I'm bringing a bat, a ball, a glove, a football, and I'd throw a backpack on, and I'd throw the bat in best I could, and I'd hang the glove off my handlebars, and I would ride my bike over to the school, and I would see who showed up. And often, you'd get five or six other kids, because I'd make about 10 or 12 calls, get five or six other kids that would show up. Now, we might start off by playing three-on-three -three football with a permanent quarterback. We might play that for a while. And then we would morph into, let's play some baseball. 
we're sick of the football. And how, how do you play baseball with five or six kids? Well, you know how five or six kids played baseball if you grew up with it. You play and you go, okay, can't hit the ball to right field. Uh, play with a shortstop, pitcher, and uh, two outfielders, center field and left field. Uh, anything that's a ground ball that looks routine is an out. Uh, pitcher's hand for every out. you got to run the bases. And uh, you, you get to uh, hit until you get three outs. And you'd make up rules. And it was phenomenal. And that's how we spent our summers. And then maybe we would uh, ride, I'd ride my bike over to the video arcade and waste, you know, a buck fifty in uh, quarters on some video game, Pac-Man, Tron, some, uh, you know, some other game, you know, that uh, was ridiculous. Donkey Kong, that was big, big in my childhood. But, Stephen, I digress. How do you spend, how did you spend your time as a kid in the summers? Yeah, so I had a few different things. Um, I remember playing All Stars baseball, like that was a big one for me. Um, you know, during the summertime, that was always a lot of fun. But uh, hashtag humblebrag. Hashtag humblebrag. That's right, All Stars baby. <laughs> um, no, but uh, you know, I had an older brother who's uh, three years older than me, so we would play a lot of sports. Uh, you know, he would dominate me because he's a big brother. But we played basketball in the driveway. We also invented our own games, like you said. Um, I remember yes. it was a really fun game we had. We had the garage open, and then we had a pretty decent, not like a huge driveway, but we had like a you know okay-sized driveway, and we took like a tennis ball, and it was basically like handball, and we had one as the goalie, one, and you just run out of the garage, throw the ball as hard as you could, try to score, get it by the other guy, and if it deflects, then it's just an all-out chaos in the middle. So that that was kind of fun, you know, just kind of fighting with him, basically. Um, and, then, you know, it was just playing sports. Then I had a friend who had a great, like, field behind his house and so they had like their own wiffle ball stadium that they had kind of built so we play wiffle ball out there uh, but mostly it was just you know any type of sport that i could play like i was playing it yes and that's, that's all i was doing in the summertime was outside playing sports wiffle ball was huge, huge. when i was growing up like yeah I, I my younger brother and i would play that a lot with his friends we constructed a uh a, a makeshift baseball field then played some wiffle ball that way too and uh also we didn't have a basketball court steven and I blame my parents for this. Like, I, I didn't become much of a ball handler in the traditional sense uh, with basketball because we lived, as I have pointed out multiple times, a little rural. We didn't have sidewalks. We had a gravel driveway. We had a normal driveway, but it had cars in it. And then we didn't have, like, a, uh, you know, a pouring of cement anywhere on our property that I could play, I could dribble a ball on. But... I had the earth, and this is going to sound weird, but I used to dribble the basketball in the backyard on the uneven ground with rocks and uneven ground, and the ball, of course, would dribble every which way. And I didn't realize this until I was in college, but I, you know, I noted that like when I dribbled the ball in college, like in a pickup game, I would dribble closer to the ground than other people with the ball, like I was a little bit hunched over, a little bit low to the ground. Like, you know, you see some guards will, will do that, get down low. It, but I was doing it because when I was a kid and I had to dribble in the backyard on the dirt, if I didn't get low to the ground, I couldn't bounce the ball. And so we set up a, a, a makeshift rim in the backyard, my brother and I, at about eight and a half feet. And you know what happened on that rim. It was, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon against Patrick Ewing, one-on-one uh, -on -one games. 
And we, you know, played both roles or played those parts. And it was big man against big man, kind of like NBA jams before it existed. It was fun. I had a good time with it. Yeah, like we, you know, we had a driveway and it had, you know, uneven slabs of, you know, concrete where one part is up, one part is down. And then, you know, the hill at the top kind of going down the bottom. So it was just different angles to shoot the ball. But uh, we would have the mini trampoline in front of the hoop and then we would jump off that and dunk. And it was so dangerous i don't know how my parents let me do it and my brother do it but it's just like you know what please don't break the rim and break the hoop because we eventually did obviously because we got too big and just started dunking really hard but i mean we we're just doing some crazy things out there it was slam ball you know with the jumping off the trampolines before slam ball my dad told me a story when you know because my dad grew up he was uh you know he was three kids in his family but he had two older sisters that were older than him and you know he eventually goes on to play shortstop as a professional baseball player Rises up to AAA. He had great hands. He was a really proficient defensive player. In fact, a few of his teammates that played in the big leagues, I talked to them over the years, and they were like, hey, your dad would have been like in today's game, he would have been a utility middle infielder that would come in as a defensive replacement. That would have been who he was, you know. And, and you look at his batting averages, you know, he hit 240, he hit 260. He wasn't a hitter, but he was a really good defensive player. And so my dad used to tell me when he was a kid, he had a brick wall in his parents' driveway. And I noted, you know, in my childhood when I'd go visit my grandparents that that brick wall was worn. Like it it was it had thrown balls were getting thrown on that wall for decades. And my dad said he used to throw the ball off the wall and get closer and closer to the wall and practice like backhanding, you know, forehanding, backhanding, throwing different angles with a tennis ball. And I really do think that contributed to him as a middle infielder having good hands, soft hands. And, you know, it's those kinds of dumb things. Like today kids have video games. Nobody's throwing the ball against the wall. But he was doing all those drills over and over a million times in his parents' driveway. I also think that, because I agree with you, uh, you know, people aren't doing those type of drills anymore. And I remember throwing tennis balls against, like, the garage door and stuff. Like, I would do that as well. But... I also think the fact that, you know, your dad was actually playing with the ball and not doing speed and quickness stuff. Like, I think there's a little bit of difference there where, you know, nowadays kids are better athletes, but they don't necessarily have the skills because it's all about, you know, how fast can you get, how high can you jump? And I think it does eventually hurt at some point where you need to have to actually play the game and be on the field and play. And so I think, I think a lot of times we, we underrate that part of sports where, just how comfortable are you comfortable with you are are you with you know dribbling the basketball or shooting the basketball or you know making a backhand play? I, I think people underrate that uh, skill a lot. And I think sometimes when you organize yourselves, you know, as kids, you you get other things out of it. You get conflict resolution. You learn how to deal with people and you know teammates. And there's no adults around to kind of mediate that stuff. You have to do it yourself. I think it's good skill building. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Turk 182 is called in. He he's got a childhood memory for us. Turk, what do you got? Hey, look, you're right. Nerf football, you never see a Nerf football anymore. Nope. Wiffle ball was the ultimate, though. The absolute ultimate. If you lived in a cul-de-sac or if you lived on a regular street and you had a two-story house, then you have the levels, right? Yeah. Long, single, hit the second deck double. You know what we used to do, Turk? You know what we used to do? We would use we would use the neighbor's mailbox as the strike zone. And the That's neighbor right. neighbor probably not too happy about that. But let me tell you something else about what we used to do. You're talking about basketball. I remember laying on my back and watching you dunk a ball on an eight-foot hoop, and I was filming <laughs> you. So you tell that to your audience. 
Like That's that. all I got for you. Highlight reels, baby. Turk, uh, I knew, Turk182, if you haven't picked up, is a friend of mine who I knew in high school and actually lived with Turk182 after college, shortly after graduation. Now, he's right. Uh, we lived on a cul-de-sac. We would play wiffle ball. This is how bad it is. I can't believe we did this. We would play wiffle ball all day long in that cul-de-sac. It was a regular neighborhood. And we would use this old guy's mailbox who was very patient with us as a strike. So if the pitcher threw the ball and you didn't swing and it hit the mailbox, that was a strike. Uh, I don't know why that guy tolerated us. And, yes, we did a lot of highlight reel dunking with uh, Turk 182 laying on the ground and me dunking over him. Uh, Sam in Vancouver. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, so I wanted to chime in. Uh, the last caller brought the Nerf football up, and, man, I don't know if you were uh, young enough or old enough you might have been, but when they put that whistle in the Nerf football and you would just <laughs> throw that halfway down your freaking street yeah. and the sound it would make, just burned the vortex, in my memory. The vortex ball. Yes, absolutely. And our football, our football field was the street, and it's funny that you mentioned that you're – strike zone was the mailbox our mailboxes were the first down markers yeah. and uh we happened to have a break in the pavement at one point too so we had like probably four first downs before you could get to the uh end zone on our street so it was a pretty good field and uh, of course basketball with the the friends at the eight foot hoop and jamming it and taking it off of the freaking the the, the clamp thing so you yep. technically broke it but then you've got to fix it yeah, man, good memories. And good Little League, of course. Yeah, yeah good memories. Uh, here's the other thing, Stephen. You know what uh, Turk182 and I did in that cul-de-sac? We uh, we had to paint a pitching rubber somewhere in the cul-de-sac. We got white spray paint and painted a pitching rubber on the ground. It's probably still there to this day. The neighbors probably hate us. That's, that is great. And that kind of <laughs> go like, outside our house. So we had these neighbors that had a grandson, and they did the same thing. They, they you know, painted on a baseball diamond like on the cement and behind the fence that they could play. And so like, you know, they'll play baseball there. My kids, they moved, but it's still there and it'll always be there. So that's great. That is, that is, the that's the old guy who owned the house and we used his mailbox as the strike zone, he would come out and watch the game sometime. <laughs> so we nasty. never really, we never really thought, you know, he was about 80 years old and a nice guy. And we never really thought we were bothering him. But as I look back, I go, he probably just wanted to get his mail. Well, leave it here. You got the BFT. Good show today. Uh, humming right along. Appreciate those of you who are streaming. You know, if you're streaming the show, you can still call in. I like when you call in. I especially like when new callers call in. I had a guy the other day, met a guy, and he said, oh, I listen to the show every day. And I said, you should call in sometime. And his reaction immediately was, uh, I don't know. Uh, like like he was nervous about calling in, Stephen. Like what happens when people call it? You ever call into a radio show, Stephen? Uh, I don't think I ever called into a radio show, no. I, I just, did you, do you did think you people do that? are afraid? I did when I was a kid, like 12, 13, 14. I called into KNBR in, this, in the Bay Area and asked some question about the Giants. But um, I haven't called into my own show, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> no, yeah, that would be, be weird. I, I, I really encourage people to call in. You add something. You speak for more than just yourself. I'm just telling you. That, that's the thing is, yeah, I don't think people understand, like, if, when you ask a question, you're not the only one that has that question. Like, I probably have yeah. that question, and I just didn't ask, you know, or I forget about it. Yeah. There you go. 
Well, we have t- we have uh, the five at five coming up top of the hour. I want phone calls here. 503-417-7575. You want to weigh in on the Oakland A's situation in uh, in Vegas? Have at it. You want to weigh in on uh, the Beaver Collective? We've been talking about that this week. Have at it. Is that the biggest problem at Oregon State? You want to weigh in on the Pac-12 or next Thursday's NBA draft or whatever's on your mind, whatever you did this summer or last summer or when you were a kid during summer, have at it. 503-417-7575. Let's go to the phone line. Seattle. Mike is in Seattle. He wants to talk about Oregon State. Mike, what's on your mind? Hey, John, how are you? Thanks for, yeah, so I I have not been a caller for a long time in the talk shows. Nice. But it's a thing that that works. I called into Leo Laporte. Remember Leo Laporte at TMDR? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. He was in, remember Leo? Yeah. Yeah, so he's awesome. a tech guy now, and I call into his show. But I wanted to compliment you on the article that you wrote about the guy who's an Oregon Duck fan who was living in California, yes. and he passed away. Yes. Oh, that one broke my heart. I could tell that story here. But uh, you got anything else? Or I'll tell the story after you get off the air. Well, anything else you on well, your mind? Well, and, and uh, so I was out of pocket on Wednesday, so I didn't get – I didn't get involved in the whole break into the Tim Shelton thing. I was on the golf course yesterday listening to your call-in from Dick Oldfield in the NFL yep. or in the NIL. You know, and Dick sounded very tired and very worn out, and he has a huge job with Kyle Bornstead, who I know. And I think Beaver Nation needs to help those guys any way they can, not just with money, but can you imagine if those two guys are the only ones who are reaching out to donors yeah, and to students and to athletes and to community members to get them hooked up? That is a huge job. You know, you almost have to treat this like a business adventure. I know you have a collector or you have a have a nonprofit. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? A uh, ton of work. ton of work. ton of work. And you have to harvest those contributors and you have to talk to them about why it's important. And I heard in Dick's voice that he's overwhelmed and it's very tiring. And then to have Tim Sheldon say what he said, which I think is a breath of fresh air, because we really don't know the finances of all this stuff. We actually don't know the finances of all these universities. I sent you a note in Messenger. You know, up here in Washington, both Washington State and Washington, they have to go to their regions in the state and actually show the books. Yeah. And it and it was very eye opening. The Washington State University eleven and a half million the, dollar deficit. Yeah, yeah problem. There's a problem there. Yeah, I don't mean to cut you off there, but we got to get to other callers. But um, yeah, I mean, in in the state of Washington, they are legally bound to to have to do that. To uh, you know, have to go to their legislature and, and they have to show their budget and they have to answer questions. And I think it's good create some accountability certainly did in the case of washington state having to explain why they were upside down 11 and a half million dollars last year uh and it was interesting to see what they learned there he uh the pc was talking about that i wrote about at johnconzano.com was about a subscriber named jack kirkpatrick and jack did not live in california jack lived in mexico i got an email from jack's wife saying will you unsubscribe my husband from your publication that was the subject line, unsubscribe my husband. And I read the email, and in the email, uh, his wife, who, you know, her name is Suzanne, and I can't imagine what she's going through. 
his wife pointed out that he died a couple of months ago. Jack died. Colon cancer got him. Now, I never spoke with Jack Kirkpatrick. We never shook hands. We never saw each other. He never called in the radio show. We were never in a grocery store. And, but I started asking her questions via email. You know, what is he about? How did you meet? You know, uh, how long did he have colon cancer? Getting to know him a little bit. And it turns out he's a University of Oregon grad who graduated in 1974. After college, he ran a restaurant in Central Oregon. Then he got in the golf business. He started managing country clubs in four different states he worked in, including Arizona, California, and, and the state of Oregon. And Jack and his wife had two daughters, Jackie and Courtney. They had grandchildren. He was a huge Duck fan. And one of the things I noted, and I can, I can tell at johnconzano.com, when you subscribed, how many times you, uh, you read, you know, if you leave a comment, I can, I, 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 can, I can find out how many times you commented and what you commented. I, I get a lot of data. And what I noted about Jack and his habit was that he read everything I wrote. He was an early adopter. He joined on day one, March of 2022. He followed me from the newspaper world to the pirate ship, so to speak. And Jack subscribed on day one. And he, I write almost every day. Sometimes I write more than once in a day. Sorry, I'm spamming you. But I looked up his account activity on Monday. Jack opened every one of those columns that he, that he was alive to see, 447 straight columns. He opened every one of them. Six times he posted a comment. Most of the time he debated kindly with other readers. You know, he seemed like a nice guy. And on January 25th of this year, Jack read my work for the final time. Three weeks later, February 17th, he was dead. And I felt bad because I feel like I'm in, in a relationship with these readers. I do. But in the same way that I'm in a relationship with you as a listener. I regret that I never got a chance to talk to Jack or to email with Jack or to thank Jack and say, hey, thanks for being there for day one when, you know, when I was leaving the safety of the paper and going out on my own. And, you know, something happened. There's something that it, a byproduct of this independent endeavor that I never expected is the direct connection I have with readers now. There's nobody in the way. There's not a newspaper trying to tell me what to do. There aren't, you know, interested parties telling me what to say or think. It's me and it's you. And I don't know if you feel it when you're reading me, but I feel it. And I particularly feel it on a day like when I get an email from somebody who says, hey, my husband died. Can you unsubscribe him? And so there's no barrier between us when I'm writing now. And I like that. It's a very conversational, direct, columnist-to-reader relationship. And I'm enjoying it more than I ever have. And I hope Jack felt it while he was alive. And so when I saw Suzanne's note that Jack was dead, I went, Oh, he fought cancer for three years. I, you know, I'm told he went peacefully. His family was with him, his kids and his grandkids, and I'm grateful for that. But I can't imagine the last several months have been easy on his family. So I wrote this column. If you haven't read it, it, it posted on Tuesday, very early on Tuesday morning. For the subscribers, you got it immediately to your email inbox. But I wrote about Jack, and I really wrote about my relationship with my readers now. I do not take it for granted that it's you and me. I do not take it for granted. So thank you to everybody who's reading. I appreciate that, and I hope you're having as much fun as I am. 
All right, coming up, I'll continue to take your phone calls in the 5 o'clock hour. Anna's going to come along, and we're going to play the 5 at 5. Evan in Vancouver wants to tell us about his wiffle ball summers. Do you have memories as well from your summers? 503-417-7575. Let it rip. Anna's in the studio. She is uh, back from whatever she's doing this summer. How's your summer going, Anna? How's it going? You doing a bunch of stuff this summer? Uh, yeah. So you having today, a good summer? <laughs> today I was shuttling kids huh? around. Yeah. I love it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's great. I love it. I think, um, I think I should call a bunch of people today and be like, hey, how's your summer going? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, people that are just Very... actively working their normal jobs during the week and don't get a summer vacation, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Those I, people... But I always say that to people on like a Monday. Yeah. I would I'll run into people on a Monday and they'll be like, "Oh, did you have a good restful weekend?" I want to poke them in the eye sometimes. <laughs> I know they like mean the well. Of, like at the end of football season. Yeah, because you, I'm working like, every weekend. I'm like, yeah, I worked. You can't fault them. What did you do? Yeah. You know, I I've, I noticed that lately anybody that we run into that says they're retired, you get this gleeful yeah. look in your eye. I want to you know, know what's that like. Oh, I I want to know. Like it's Oz. I just got an email from a listener who said that uh, she's retiring after 35 years of owning her own business, and she's been working 65 hours a week. She owns a lab. I don't know what it's like to not a dog, an actual lab. She's in <laughs> uh, bio, uh, whatever that is, food science. Uh-huh. Uh, you know when they have like a outbreak, yeah, and they go, "Don't eat the." Fill in the blank. Yeah. And usually it's some produce uh-huh. that you really like. Yes. And they go, don't eat the sprouts. Or something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that She's in that business. Uh-huh. I am fascinated by that business, by the way. Yeah. Like when, remember when Chipotle had a big thing? Yeah. Everybody's getting Wasn't sick. That, isn't that interesting how we've all just kind of forgotten about that? I, I didn't think for a while Chipotle was going to make it back, but they did. Why did they make it back? Because we have short-term memories. We forgot. I, I had to think for a minute. What was it? Was it E. coli? Was it salmonella? It was one of those. I was happy and... about it because the lines were shorter. Yeah. <laughs> you were. But don't you think when you go to Chipotle. <laughs> Living on the edge. There's kind of an acceptable risk. Kind of You, you kind of weigh that. Because you're in line and you're looking. No, I don't think that it's I'm not... going to be ingesting E. coli. <laughs> but don't you feel... It's not part of my measured risk. You're watching numerous people handle your food. Yeah. Somebody gets you the tortilla or the bowl. Mm-hmm. Then they act, they act like you're in line at like the prison. Yeah. And they go, you know, do you want this? Do you want that? <laughs> Girl. You know, what kind of rice? What kind of beans? And you go down the line. It's a little more pleasant but, than prison but experience. But I kind of look at the workspace they're working in. Yeah. And I kind of go, that looks like oddly like our refrigerator. It's a little bit, you know, <laughs> there's a little bit of painting outside the lines I've going on. I've never thought that at a trial. I have. I actually have. See, I, I expect thought with to get the E. coli scare that it was going to be the safest you could ever eat at Chipotle. Like, they're not going to let <laughs> it happen <laughs> twice, you know? Yeah, you're like not that. wrong. That's, yeah. Yeah, short yeah. lines, clean food. Man. Yeah, could lightning strike twice, nah. right? Mm-hmm. That's the time to go. <laughs> right after they say everybody got sick. You go, oh, I got to get there. They all had to shut down for a while. Mm-hmm. And we didn't think, I didn't know if they were going to make it back. And here they are. We've they, all forgotten. They figured it out. People they are very out. forgiving. I think, you know, short short news cycle. Unless yeah. you directly got sick from it. And if you directly got sick, you probably were a big fan of Chipotle. 
So you probably went, you know, it wasn't their fault. Right. They got some bad sprouts. Right. Whatever happened. Whatever how did, how did you send your spend your summer as a kid, Anna? Because oh. we've been taking some calls from people who have talked about playing wiffle ball or basketball or what they did. Mm-hmm. What memory popped into your head when I said, as a kid, how do you spend your summers? Mm. Um, I have two distinct memories. Um, I cleaned motel rooms at our family business. Fun. Yeah, that was a blast. Um and that, but the other more pleasant one is we had this big fig tree in our backyard on Sacramento Street in Park Rose. And um, I, there was a, it would just had these huge branches and there was a perfect height branch that you could climb up to as a little kid. And it was like a perch. So my, some of my best memories are just sitting back there by myself. drawing and writing and And climbing that fake and daydreaming and laying back and looking at clouds and yeah did you daydream that one day you will uh marry a man and you'll be on radio with him yeah when you were in that fig tree that was that was one of those yeah that was one of those visions i had oddly an 11 year old Mm -hmm. oddly it's what anna does now often i'll find her in the backyard sitting in a tree (laughs) you know waiting uh let me take a call and then we're gonna do the five at five okay you good with that? Yeah, yeah. Let's okay, Evan's in Vancouver. Evan, what, what's on your mind? Hey, John. Thanks for taking the call. You Number bet. one, I got three things. Number one, that's the second time I've ever called you. First time we were naming baseball teams, and I chose Portland Prime, and you laughed at me. I still think that's the best name for a Portland baseball team. Portland Prime. Second thing, yeah. No. Second I, thing, I'm, I wasn't probably laughing at you. With me? Okay. Second thing, uh, I appreciate your show. I'm not your target audience. I'm 66, uh, four years of my battle with cancer. Uh, but I listen to other radio shows, and the, the hosts usually offend me within the first half hour. You don't. Thanks for your style and your grace. Can Third I ask? Thing. Okay, wait, wait. You, you said cancer. What's going on with that? I've got prostate cancer. I've had a, my cancer. Pro, uh, had it removed, surgery, gone through uh, radio, radiation twice. Uh, next step is probably chemo, but it's what it is. No big deal. Yeah, but you know, good, good, good on you for keeping a good attitude. And and uh, I, I, you know, I'm with you. And I, th- I think you know, if this show can be any kind of escape for you, it makes me feel better about doing the show. Well, thank you. If you can get cancer, prostate's the one to get. It's pretty slow growing, but anyway. Okay. Um, third thing, when I was a kid. Grew up in Corvallis, Oregon. My best friend's dad was the director, a PR director for the Oregon State University. So I'm a Beaver believer, graduated from Corvallis High. Um, we'd go play wiffle ball. Uh, his yard better than mine. He had a fence. Uh, we'd strike zone the whole nine yards. We were playing wiffle ball, and the mailman walked by. And he stopped, took off his shoulder bag with all the mail, and taught us a new pitch. And when you play wiffle ball, you know, one side of the ball is, you know, sliced into whatever, and they curve left and right really well. He taught us a pitch where you throw it straight overhand with the perforations of the ball on top, and it was a drop ball. And it went down and just, like, fell off the table at the end. Uh, And so we played wiffle ball and throw the mailman pitch. And I remember that vividly, number one, because the guy stopped and actually took Ten minutes out of his day. That's great. I had a great time playing wiffle ball. I love that. Thanks, John. You know the, you know the mailman today can't do that. Be uh, I talked to our mailman, Anna. Um, 
And I found myself having a conversation with him, and I and he, you know, he did it. You know, we had I mentioned this on the air the uh, you know a couple of weeks ago. We had a mail carrier who said the mailman can't really stop and have a long conversation with you anymore because they have GPS on all of the mail carriers, and they track how long it takes them to do their route and where they are and where did they stop and why did they stop and you know they're on them. Our mail carrier told me that he 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 go one further. He's got a camera on him. That's on the truck or on his person somewhere. Mm-hmm. He's got like a body cam. Yeah. And they can go back and look at his day and find out, like, why were you talking to somebody for 10 minutes or whatever? Move along. Can you imagine that mailman trying to play wiffle ball? Trying to explain that to his supervisor? <laughs> I just can't imagine that level of stress. Yeah. In the that, course that's of no your fun. day. Nobody wants to be watched like that. No. How are they going to hire people? No. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if I'm a mail carrier. I'm like, I don't, I'm too old for this, man. I can't talk to people anymore on my route. Yeah. Get moving. Yeah. Well, because also, like, part of your job, I feel like, in that role is to be, you know, affable with the public. Yep. Even though you get the same seven questions every day from everyone on your route. I mean, 100%. You know, that's like that's your community helper and so to track someone like that big brother like and oh that just gives me the chills and not in a good way yeah not good stuff all right let's get to the five at five the five at five anna your number one story as you see it is Ricky Fowler leading the U.S. Open. He shot 62 in the opening round. He's following up solidly today. Now, he's never won a major. So we're not talking about Tiger Woods. We're not talking about the the normal names that we hear floated around. Is this good or is it bad? All right. Fowler's 10 under now. He's he's 2 under today. 8 under yesterday with that 62. He's struggling a little more today. He's got three bogeys through 10 holes, but he's still 2 under. And he's, he's, he is the leader by one stroke over Wyndham Clark, who uh, has finished today. Um, I think it's good for people like me who like to root for good stories. Fowler's a good story. You know, he's, uh, We talked about this earlier. He's been runner-up three times in majors. He was third in another. He's never won, never broken through. I think some of the golf purists, the snobs out there who play golf all the time, are going to go, I need brand names on Sunday. But maybe if you get a Rory McIlroy and a Ricky Fowler in that you know, that final group on Sunday, maybe it works for TV. But I, I still like good stories. And, and how do you become a brand name? You win majors. Maybe it's time for Ricky Fowler, who's a bit of a baby face. <laughs> he's a bit of a baby face. Yeah. Like, I bet he gets carded, Ricky <laughs> Fowler. And you know, he's like 5'9", 150. He's one of those guys. You know, wouldn't you rather be a baby face, though, than, you know, somebody who has looked old since they were 20? Well, those are the two options. <laughs> if there's is there a middle ground no. where I can look like a grown up, no. this is but this not is, look Benjamin Buttons. Talk radio. There's, yeah. no, there's no middle I love ground. It. You know, A or B. Anna just asked me, would I rather be seven feet tall or four foot eleven? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, can I be six one, six two? No. Okay. Uh, I think I'll root for Ricky Fowler. How's that? Okay. All right. Number two story as you see it. Nike says it's still gonna back John Morant. Uh, isn't that interesting? So late, like literally, just you know, minutes after the NBA banned John Morant for twenty five games, suspended. Suspended. Yeah. 
Suspended him for waving that firearm on, on Instagram Live for a second time this year. Nike said, well, we're not going to sever ties with it's him. PR. We're good. We're pleased, they say, that Jaw is taking accountability and prioritizing his well-being. We will continue to support him on and off the court. Now, interestingly, he's had this deal with Nike going back to 2019. And, you know, there was some scuttlebutt that were they going to sever ties with him because they, you know, removed all of his signature athletic shoes from the the, the app and the website. But then his shoe, Hunger... Sold out. Sold out last month, uh, just in a matter of minutes. So do you think this is like, you know, it, staying with him makes sense? Yeah. It's right? A, it's a PR move. When it comes move. to business. It's 100% a PR move. And you know that what Nike did, everybody knew this suspension was coming. The question was, was it going to be 17 games? Was it going to be 25 games? Was it going to be 41 games? So Nike not taking very long to issue a statement going, we're standing by him. Nike had already decided it was standing by him, no matter what the NBA did. And part of that, Anna, is that the shoes are selling, baby. Show business, not show friends. And, you know, Nike's decided it's not a bad enough offense for them. But the NBA is saying, hey, we don't like the messaging. We don't like the branding of this. We can't have you waving a gun around. I think Nike has decided, hey, we're going to continue to be edgy. Let's stand by John Morant. Number three story, as you see it. You had to think about what number we were on, huh? No, I'm getting better at that. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, I was pausing for dramatic effect. Oh, you were. The pregnant pause. Sometimes a little bit of a pause. Yeah. Is nice. You know what I mean? (laughs) Isn't it nice? It only comes with comfort on air. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. People who are not comfortable on air are not comfortable with silence. They can't handle it. they got to fill every second with some kind of noise. I can feel Steven getting nervous, though, sometimes when we come back from commercial break. I'll sit for a moment and let the music play. Just for a moment. Like, maybe I like the song. Yeah. And I, can fe- I, I can't see Steven right now, but I could feel him. And I could feel him going, did he drop off? Is he still there? Is he, is he paying? Does he know we're coming back? And I let I let it go. Stephen, am I right in that? Hundred <laughs> percent. See, I'm always there, Stephen. Just want you to know, we're good. I just okay? have to have trust. You know, it's just trust. Yeah. Just, it's like a trust fall. Just do it. <laughs> Anna, go. MJ, selling off uh, his majority ownership oh, Michael of Jordan. the Hornets. He's out. Uh, Woe just saying that he's agreed to sell the team to a group led by Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnall. Mm. A deal worth, oh, just $3 billion. Plotkin's the founder of Melvin Capital, was already a minority owner of the Hornet. Schnall is co-president of some three-letter thing and or three-word like group and was a minority owner of the Hawks prior to the sale. And how much is he getting for this? Uh, total sales, $3 billion. He, he paid Three, like... Two seventy-five mil yen. Oh, I would say that's a good. He made. He got a return. Return on investment. So he's still keeping a minority stake in the team. Yeah. Uh, you know, he initially bought this minority stake in the Bobcats. That's what they were back 2010. then. Twenty ten. Two thousand six. Oh, okay. But in twenty ten, okay, he became right. the majority owner of the team. Wow. Good for him. 
By the way, they've only made the postseason twice since 2010. Doesn't good matter. for the good for Charlotte as well. That Jordan's <laughs> getting away from the basketball decisions. Better owner Michael Jordan or Burt Cold and Jody Allen. <laughs> Here's mm. the thing that confused me: How come that was so easy? You know, Jordan just goes, ah, "I'm going to sell." Done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Paul Allen dies. Jody Allen takes over the trust. We're still here. Meanwhile, Jordan has decided he wants to go gamble and do whatever, and uh, he's out. This doesn't seem fair. Number four. The NBA, uh, I can't talk today. It's Is it Friday? Yeah. It's Friday. It is Friday. Ma. Okay. The NBA draft next Thursday. Yes. Blazers sitting on that number three pick, but the overall number one pick is going to be Victor Wembanyama. Is he going to be mm. as good as advertised? Ooh, is Wemby going to deliver? That is a really good one. Okay, uh, seven two ish, uh, French heritage. Spurs are going to have him. That's a good place for him to be. They expect that he's going to play in the Vegas Summer League. That's going to be a huge draw for the league if they do that. And uh, Stephen, I'll let you go first. Is the Wembenyama era going to be as good as advertised or disappointing? I would say it's going to be as good as advertised. It's tough because. There's already so much hype around him. Like, what is successful? Is it a championship? Yeah, I think he'll get a championship. Is it two? I mean, I think he's that good. I think he's going to be that good of a player. So, yeah, I would say I would say he lives up to expectations. Is he coachable like Tim Duncan and David Robinson, or will he have Kawhi Leonard-like conflicts with Greg Popovich? It remains to be seen, but I will say this. You know, as a 19-year-old, he's still playing over in his professional league when he doesn't have to. Like, he's been playing the last month or two. Mm-hmm. He's already been known to go to the Spurs. He could have just, you know, sat out. No, he had his last game, uh, I believe it was today or yesterday. Like, he's continued to play because he wants to play basketball. Like, I think that's a good sign, first and foremost. Like, you know what? He, he, he's, a, he's a baller. Like, that's just what he does. He wants to play basketball. So I think it's a good sign to saying, you know, maybe he will listen to the coaches. There you go. I will say uh, I'll go with it uh, because – I like, I think, great player, great talent, great coach, culture in the organization. This one lines up. Um, you know, if he were going to the usual garbage franchises that draft at the top of the draft, um, you know, I'd have some questions. Like I actually, yeah, I mean, look, I'd be re- let's be real. If he's coming to Portland and you know Burt Cold is going to have the keys to his future, not as much confidence in it. Not as much confidence with a coach in his first job ever as a head coach in Chauncey Billups. Not as much confidence in small market team with a GM, Joe Cronin, who's never worked anywhere as a GM before. You know, there's some things that make it feel like Wemby would be floating, trying to float upriver, upstream. He's swimming downstream in San, in San Antonio. They've done it. They've got a trophy case there with a bunch of trophies in it. They've got a coach who, who knows what he's doing. You've got some good culture. Um, you know, I think he'll be okay. He's going to be fine, Anna. Stop worrying about it. I'm not. I'm not worried. Number five, finally. I'm really I'm actually not worried. Five. Uh, Father's Day, everybody. Public service announcement. Oh, yes. On Sunday for anyone that needs to, uh, oh, you know, commemorate the father in their life. Um, I think it's fascinating, the father and son combinations mm. in sports. Oh, yeah. More recently, you know, we've been talking a lot about LeBron and Bronny. Are they going to wind up playing together Somehow. Yeah. Okay, that'd Ken be a good Giffrey one. Ken Griffey Jr. and Senior. Ken Griffey Jr. and Senior. Ken Griffey. Yeah. Junior and Senior. Yeah. 
I promise I haven't been drinking today. You sound like keep, you have. I know. I, I'm clear-headed. I'm just slurring my words. Sounds like so, she's had a good summer so far. <laughs> are we? How's your summer going? I wish I had something to blame for it except for just So are you asking brain best father-son duos in sports? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what you're getting yeah. at here? Are, there's more, right? Kobe and Jelly Bean, Bean Bryant. Jelly Bean Bryant. <laughs> That's contagious. Yeah. Um, how about How about the Mannings? Can we go Archie and Peyton or Archie and Eli? Those are father's sons. Um, who else? Uh, how about uh, how about Doc Rivers and Austin Rivers? That's a pretty good one. Hmm. You know, Yogi Berra, Dale Berra. Anybody? Who else comes to mind? How about the Alomars? Sandy Sandy Senior and Sandy Junior, or Sandy Senior and Roberto? Those those aren't bad. The Boone family. Apparently, there weren't as many as we thought. Cecil and uh, Prince Fielder. The Berries. The Rick, Berry Rick family. Berry, yeah. John Berry, Brent Berry. How about uh, Moises Alou and Philippe Alou? Pretty good. Okay. <laughs> Griffey Sr. and Jr. are really good. I mean, they combined to hit like 800 home runs. Never mind that Jr. had more than 600 of them. How about Bill and Luke Walton? That's a good one. That's top of mind. We just saw part of the Walton series. All of the Walton kids are like a genetic iteration of Bill Walton. It's really trippy. How about uh, Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonds? Gordie Howe and Mark Howe. Bobby and Brett Hull. We're in We're in hockey now. Mike Dunleavy, Jr. How about the Andrettis, Mario and Michael in, <laughs> in uh, auto sports? I like that. Whole bunch of uh, father-son combinations. Your dad's here. He's here from Taiwan. 77-year-old Taiwanese man walking around our house these days, Anna. You're going to get to spend Father's Day with your father. I'm going to. First time in how long that you've had a Father's Day with your father? Long time. Like many, many, many years. How many years? I, I can't eat. So many I can't count, really. I'll bet you were 11 years old was the last time you had a Father's Day with Might your dad. Might have been. Yeah. Probably made it's him been... some like lame card or something. <laughs> at I don't think it was lame. Those are the best gifts. That is the 5 at 5. Thank you, Anna, for delivering the 5 at 5. You know what you're not going to be doing this summer? We're not going to make you clean motel rooms. I don't know if you can promise that. We're not going to make you do that. Because I did that in such a formative time in my life, I kind of always anticipate that the other shoe's going to drop and I'll just wind up having to do that again. So. You know what, honey? I bought a motel. <laughs> there you go. That's not a <laughs> sentence I'm ever going to utter. Okay, good. Okay? You're safe on that front. <laughs> Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Well, we've been asking a lot of things on the show today. Your summer exploits as a child, your uh, great father-son combinations in sports. Who are the best? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Um, Anna was uh, getting a little wispy in that last segment. We were talking about her dad. She, I don't think she wanted to go there when we were talking on the show about um, you know it being the first time she's seeing her father on Father's Day probably since her childhood. And for those who listen to the show all the time, you know that she went just a couple weeks ago and retrieved him from Taiwan. And uh, his wife passed away, uh, Anna's stepmom. And, you know, he was alone there and not doing too well. And so she brought him here. He's living with us here in Oregon. And uh, I think he is, uh, he's doing all right. But, um Really uh, excited to spend that Father's Day and see, uh, you know, to see her with her dad on Father's Day. That'll be really cool. Let's go to Mike, who's in Salem. He's called in. Mike, what's on your mind? Well, I was just talking about uh, as a kid, we played baseball. We grew up outside of Grand on a small farm, and 
a little pasture there, and we made it into a baseball field, thanks to my brother, who you worked with at the Oregonian years ago. But uh, he went to the library and got all the measurements, and we laid out the field, and we had a great time with all the neighborhood kids. And uh, But suddenly we we had these wooden bats in, no aluminum bats. We'd get them every spring at the tire shop. With, they had a bat deal, and we'd get these bats. And, of course, when we'd break them, we'd take them to the shop and glue them and nail them and tape them and do all that sort of thing. And we'd have really some great baseball games until one of the neighbors who lived about a quarter of a mile away, his mother would come out and yell at him, and he'd drop his bat, and he'd say, well, I guess you found my Playboys, and off he'd go, and we'd lose our team. So never figured out where he got those Playboys, <laughs> but yeah, he damn sure had them, and so but we had a lot of fun in the summer. That was a, that was our main thing was playing baseball, and none of us became great baseball players, but we sure did have a lot of fun. Yep, there you go. And you you bonded, and you learned conflict resolution, and uh, you know you stayed out of trouble best you could uh, those summers. Uh, let's go to uh, Matt, who's in Eugene. Matt, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Go ahead. Hi, this is Matt. Uh, so two. Uh, uh, father-son groups we forgot is local legend Sabonis and his son. Oh, yeah. And uh, the Currys. He got uh, Dale and his two oh, sons. Yeah. Uh, you might know them as Steph and Seth. How about uh, Steven's got one. Steven, what do you got? Uh, that's actually Texas for my brother, Clay Thompson, Michael Thompson. Yeah, same thing. We forgot some people. See, that's why we. That's why you come to the show. You make the show better when, uh, when you call in with that stuff. Uh, love that. Uh, Mike in Springfield is joining the conversation as well. Mike, what do you have? Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Sr., probably the most successful duo, and I'm not even a NASCAR fan, but many championships between the two of them. Really good. Really, really good uh, father-son combination. Phil Sims, Chris Sims. Phil Sims, Chris Sims. I, the Andrettis, how about that? Mike in Springfield had the Earnhardts. I like that. A lot of good, uh, lot of good father-son combinations there. Will you celebrate Father's Day? Do you guys do anything special Father's Day, Stephen? What do you do? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't think that we'll do anything super special. Um, I know I'll go see my dad. Uh, my brother and his wife just had a baby, so I think they're going to bring the baby up, and we'll kind of nice. all hang out together. But I, that's kind of it for now. I don't. I mean, I, my, my family knows that they just. You know, I just kind of want to be be with them or be by myself. So it's all good. Yeah, uh, that's good. Yeah, but that's good. Like sometimes that's just all you want to do. You do something low key. And I know my dad. Yeah. That's what my dad wants too. He doesn't want to do anything special. He just wants to hang out with his grandkids and you know, play with. Is that them. a difference between men and women? Can we can we have that conversation without a bunch of people getting mad at me? Because, you know, I am the same way. I would like Anna said to me the other day, "What do you want to do for Father's Day?" And I said, "Well, your dad's here." See what he wants to do, and she's like, he just wants to be low key, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm on board with that. But I don't know about that, John. I'd push back a little bit. I think a lot of dads want to get away, maybe play golf, or like get away from their family, get away from their kids. <laughs> what do I want to do? I don't want to be anywhere near you. Yeah, I mean, it's, get, and that's get not me out of here. That's not a bad thing either. Like, I don't hate on it. I just, I mean, for me, like, I would rather just hang out with my wife and the kids. Like, I think that's more fun than getting away. Like, if I go golfing, I'd want to go golfing with her. Like, I wouldn't want mm. to go by myself. Or I think some guys. They just want to go, you know, get away, get with the bros, and uh, just hang out with them. That's interesting. Real interesting. Chad in Iowa has called into the show, streams the show, like a lot of people do these days, from Iowa. Chad joining us live via satellite. Chad, what's on your mind, man? Hey, Jones. Uh, I, I, I know this is like a really cliche show, but the sandlot. Like, 
that was like my go-to movie when I was a kid. And, you know, you remember playing in the sandlot when you were a kid. Like, you just, like, you picked up a ball and yep. a bat. And you 100%. just, you, you figured out a way to make the game play. Yep. You, and uh, would you play baseball or are you just talking about you would watch the Sandlot movie? Oh, no, 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 no. I would just, I, I would you play would play baseball. on the Sandlot. I was Sandlot. in Little League. Yeah. I was and would in you, Little League. Would you, organize, would you organize games against your friends or was were there adults involved? Oh, yeah, in the middle of the street. And we do the, the whole, like, the Wayne's World thing, like, car. What happened if know, somebody hit the ball coming. and there's a car coming? Was it was it like no play? Yeah, well, yeah, you'd have to stop the play and then you you just continue on. Yeah, because you don't want anybody to die while you were playing. Well, no, of course ball not. In the summer, yeah, good stuff. What are you doing in Iowa this weekend, Father's Day weekend? What's going on in Iowa? Oh, uh, in Iowa, we've got uh, just a lot of heat. Have you ever you got some heat? That's what you're doing this weekend. Have you been to the cornfield, like the the field of dreams? Uh, I have not been there. Uh, I've been to the bridges of Madison, which is kind of okay, kind of kind of crazy. Which is uh, uh, a good uh, what's his name? Gosh, gosh, darn it! He's like the coolest guy in the world. But <laughs> Clint Eastwood, uh, yeah, Clint Eastwood Clint bridges Eastwood. of Madison County, yeah. I yes, part of yes. my job the, here on this Madison, show is to to fill in the blanks. The the bridges of Madison County are awesome. I have not been to the fields of uh, uh, the baseball field, um, but they they are still open. And uh, now, they, do you know where like, they are? Last year, Dyersville. Got, got a, How far away are you? How far away are you from the Field of Dreams? I'm in the southeast. It's more in the north. How many? North. Like, what are we talking? Two hours? Uh, probably. How, why haven't you gone? Like, that, as, as a sports fan, Chad, I would expect that you'd want to go see the Field of Dreams. Like, you know, is that not a draw anymore? No, no, no. And that's like, no, no. I just, I don't have the time. I, I don't. You, you know what, John? You're absolutely right. I need to get off my ass and go do it. All right, this weekend, I want you to go to the Field of Dreams, and it's hot. You're not doing anything else, and then you call back on Tuesday. Tuesday's show, I want to report. Okay. So if there I it do it, do I get to meet Kevin Costner and choose Joe Jackson? I have no and, control uh, over that. I don't know what's there, but I know this. You uh, better let somebody else drive. That's all I'm saying. What uh, what player did you mimic their batting stance when you were a kid? Because I know I would mimic batting stances. I did every one of them. <laughs> it didn't matter. Left-handed, right-handed. Did you have a favorite, um, though, that you really liked to do? I really – I was a right-handed hitter, but I could flip over and bat left-handed, and I could do Will Clark. Uh, facial expressions and all. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I It was a real thrill for me about a week ago. Now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say something and you're gonna think I'm a bad person, but it was a thrill for me. Roger Craig, the former Giants manager, died. That wasn't the thrill part. Okay, he died. Will Clark tweeted about Roger Craig, and I retweeted it with a comment about how those were my teams. 
and Will Clark retweeted my tweet. That my that was a that was kind of I kind of geeked out on that. I I was a big Will Clark fan. I like to, well, should I say, get Will Clark on the show? A couple years ago, there was uh, Nick Aliotti hangs out with Will Clark. Did you guys know that? No, did not know that. They hang out. They're both big duck hunters, apparently. And so they know each other. They hang out a little bit. And the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament happened to be happening in a July of like two years ago, or I think it was last year even. And Aliotti told me, hey. Get him on the show. I would like to get Will Clark on the show. I, Aliotti told me, hey, Will Clark's going to be with me in uh, duck hunting in Oregon. What if I brought him over to the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament? And I was like, I wouldn't mind that. Like, he could play. And I guess Will Clark was coming to Eugene because the Emeralds were honoring him as well because he had some involvement with the franchise as a coach and – what not? Will Clark has great stories. Now, I don't know if we can have Will Clark on the air because I think all of his stories are foul, but he has great stories. Um, I've had some people tweet at me, you know, like, you know, Khalid, the singer. My, you know, he tweeted at me one time. My 20-year-old daughter was very excited going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe Khalid retweeted your tweet or whatever. And I was like, eh, doesn't do anything for me. But Will Clark giving me a retweet, that was uh, – I, I liked that one, even though it was o- about somebody dying. Is that bad? Does that make you a bad person? If you're like, hey, Roger Craig died, but I got a retweet out of it? I mean, I, think, I think it just kind of makes you a, a person that's living in 2023. Like, they're just excited to get a, you know recognition from somebody that they admire. And I was like, man, the Nooshler gave me a retweet? Come on. Uh, coming up. Some parting thoughts for your weekend on this great Friday. You got the bald face truth statewide. I want you to leave it right here. The All America teams uh, all came out this week. Uh, 13 players from the Pac 12 were honor- honored across uh, all the All American teams. Uh, Stanford uh, had a whole bunch, including the uh, Pac 12 Player of the Year and Pitcher of the Year, Albert Rios and uh, Quinn Matthews. Um, also uh, getting All-America honors, Oregon State second baseman uh, Travis Bazana uh, was awarded a third-team All-American honor. So a uh, whole bunch to look forward to. Gavin Turley uh, got some freshman All-American honors uh, in the Pac-12 as well. Oregon State, uh, uh, Gavin Turley got second-team honors. He had a nice finish to the season, so keep an eye on him moving forward as well. Uh, the uh, U.S. Open is being held, and it's interesting. The Los Angeles Country Club is getting a lot of scrutiny this week. Uh, I was taking a look at the rules of the Los Angeles Country Club. Are you a country club guy, Stephen? Uh, definitely not. Definitely that is not my cup of tea. Well, you're going to be out at the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. Uh, keep I, in mind. Can I turn into a country club guy? I would love to have, be one. We have some etiquette that we have, but here, here are dress the rules. Code? I mean, you've seen yeah. you've seen me dress, John. I got to yeah. dress up for the day. Nah, you're okay. Right. The Los Angeles Country Club has rules, though. Okay, here are the rules: no shorts, tailored pants only. I'm out. <laughs> Men mu- must wear a sport coat in the clubhouse after 6 p.m. No changing shoes in the parking lot. Can't change your shoes. No flip-flops. No headphones. 
no earbuds. No athletic clothes or apparel that include slogans. No photos or videos of the club on social media. Members are responsible for their guests. No cash on the property. Uh, and no tipping. And here's the craziest rule. Members and visitors to the Los Angeles Country Club can only make phone calls from your parked car or the enclosed phone booth in the locker room. So you can't be walking around making a call. Which rule among those rules would be the most difficult for you to follow? No shorts, probably. Yeah, it's the shorts or like the no no logo gear. Can't have any logo. I mean, I like to wear jerseys. I can't be wearing jerseys out there. Come on. You can't have anything with a slogan. You can't have anything with a uh, logo. And, uh, you know, it's it's like, you know, when you go and you take your kid to preschool and you go and you see these places that uh, they only allow wooden toys, <laughs> you know, you know, the preschools I'm talking about. I mean, they're, uh, I like some of the rules. Some of the rules are great. The no no phone calls. I'm down with that. I mean, I don't want to hear your phone call. But you got to go sit in your car if you're going to make a call. Yeah, get get out of my zone if you're going to make. Why not just say no phones? They should. Yeah, I mean, because we just because if we don't have our phones on us, we feel weird and naked. I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. That's good. There you go. Let's go to the phone lines. Julius is calling in from Curvallis. Julius, what's up? Hey, first off, just on that the one you just talked about, no logos. They won't allow Nike logos there. People have that when they're golfing on their uh, shirts. Well, they're saying you can't have you can have a logo, but you can't have athletic clothes that has a slogan on it. So you okay. couldn't have a Nike right. shirt that said like "Just Do It" on it. You All can right. have the okay. swoosh. They'll let you. They'll let All you get right. away with that. All right. Hey, the reason I'm calling though, you you took me down nostalgia lane. I grew up in Detroit, and just took me back to. Summers, all we would do was play baseball. We'd get up in the morning, deliver our newspapers, do our chores. By 1 o'clock, about 10 of us, we'd be out at the uh, school ground playing baseball. Yep. And so it would be 10 of us. So what we'd do is if you're right-handed, you couldn't hit the left field. You had to hit the right or right center. (laughs) you're left-handed, you had to hit the left field or left center. So when we all got to high school and stuff, we could all hit the opposite field. That's correct. But we would just spend all day playing ball from like 1 o'clock to 6. And I was telling the, the screener, uh, on Sundays after church, it'd probably be, it'd be like 30 of us together. We'd have three or four, three teams, sometimes four, and we would just play rotate. I love just that. Just play and just never stop. We might take a water break, but it was just nonstop baseball. And we got together. It wasn't our parents. It wasn't a coach. It was just us as kids getting together, playing, and settling all our differences. And and if for some reason we couldn't get a game going or something, we would just play strike them out. We just sit there and you get two of us together, play strike them out. And even if if it was just one, I had a there was a wall we would just throw. We spent an hour just throwing the ball against the rubber ball against the wall and fielding it, just practicing fielding different angles. And, and those were the best of times. I'm telling you those. Yeah. Took me down memory lane. I appreciate you for that. Yeah, I appreciate you, uh, Julius. Have have a great weekend. Uh, look, I think, um, you know, I think that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. And I don't want to be like this old guy on his lawn talking about everything that's oh, you know, kids just don't do what, what, uh, what we used to do. But it's true. Like, I, I venture to say that 
the biggest challenge in, in our household this summer will be managing screen time for the kids. And when you talk to um, teachers who will tell you, like, hey, what was it like after the pandemic teaching kids, young kids? First thing they bring up is they go, yeah, you know, um, a lot of kids were home on devices all day long during the pandemic by no fault of their parents. Their parents had to do Zoom calls and do their job, and, you know, they had no child care. And so I think it really – uh, placed an emphasis on that. How do you guys handle screen time in your household, Stephen? This summer, like I'd love for my kids to get out in the backyard. We have a batting tee. Sometimes I'll look out the window and I'll be like, they're p- actually playing a game outside, and this is great. But how do you manage screen time? Do you manage screen time? Yeah, we do. I mean, so the oldest one, he's he's usually in charge of the TV. Like if he's watching TV or playing video games, um, you know, if we it's just we don't have like set rules. We just have basically if we feel like you've been doing it for too long, we'll say, hey, you know, go outside and play. Or you know, a lot of times, um, we'll use it as a device of just being like, if they're frustrated with one another, they're about to fight, be like, hey, you know, break it up and go, you know, look at your iPad real quick, and then they calm down, and then they get back and start playing. So we we don't really have like set rules, but you know, if it gets out of control and you can tell, and they get it's starting to get antsy, then we will say, you know what, we need to flip flip the switch here. There you go. I, I, I think um, we're going to have to figure that out in our household. It's one of those things to be determined. Um, all right, we got a, a big weekend with Father's Day coming up. We've talked about some of the father-son's combinations. By the way, Cal Ripken Jr. and Sr., come on. <laughs> How did we forget that one? How do we miss that? Thank you, Lindsay, for uh, that suggestion. Uh, Lindsay, on social media, you can always tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Um, I hope you do something special for the dad in your life. If your dad's no longer around, tell somebody about your dad. You know, and maybe I could do that in the last five minutes of the show today. For listeners who no longer have dad with you, I'm going to open the phone lines. I want you to tell me about your dad. Tell the rest of us about your dad. Do a tribute to your father. 503-417-7575. Tell me something about your dad. I, I would love to get to know your dad a little bit. Uh, you know, if you're a listener who's going, hey, yeah, I really miss my father. I'd love to give him a tribute. You know what? Put him on the airwaves here. I, I keep thinking about my grandpa. You know, he died at the age of 94. Um, he didn't really know me as a new, as a radio show host. He knew me more as a newspaper writer, reporter, columnist. Um, my granddad would have loved calling into this show or occasionally being on this show or listening to this show. Uh, that's the kind of person he was. He's a very social person. He loved to tell stories. He would have been tuned in every day, uh, if not on the back line, uh, annoying Stephen and whoever. Uh, let's go to the phone lines, 503-417-7575. we got about four minutes, so you got to make it count. But Ed is in Salem, wants to talk about Jacoby Ellsbury. Ed, what's going on with Jacoby? Hey, what is happening with Jacoby Ellsbury. Give me a Father's Day present here and and do some research. What's he doing to make a living these days? He is not retired, but the Yankees, uh, you know, he's supposed to be on the Hall of Fame ballot this year. So I don't know. Maybe that's on my to-do list. How about that? You know, put put me on the spot here. Is he a scout? I don't know, but he got in that big spat with the Yankees. Remember, they withheld his money. They thought, you know, he had broken his contract. He was upset at them. And um, you know what? I will. Uh, I'll get on that. I want to. I'm going to get Jacoby Ellsbury on the show. That's good stuff. Um, let's go to the phone lines. I want to uh, get these guests on quickly. Tammy has called in. Tammy, tell me about your dad. 
Oh, hi. I'm Tammy Kamard. I've never been on this uh, call before. I've listened to your show. Um, Thank you, Tammy. My father, I grew up in Michigan. I live in Westland, Oregon now, and my father was an amazing coach and teacher. He um, coached uh, in Flint, Michigan, and he was just an amazing sports person. I love every single sport. I listen to your show on the way into uh, work, uh, the same station on the way home, and just wanted to give a shout out to my dad. Thank you, he Tammy. Away a couple years. What, ago. what was so dad's thank name? You so much. What was dad's name? His name was Richard Hafner. Richard, uh, he had quite an influence on you. He made you a sports fan. Love him for that. Tom, tell us about your dad. Go ahead. Well, we used to go to uh, the Eugene Emerald Games when it was the the AAA affiliate for the Phillies, and the Beavers were for the Twins. I got to watch uh, growing up Boone, catcher, Schmidt, third base, Boas, uh, third, Lezinski out in the base, Matthews, and even got to watch Steve Carlton before they called him up. Your dad did so that for you. Story. Yeah, your dad did that for you. Uh, Pete, Pete, you got like 30 seconds. Pete, you got to make it count. Born on the East Coast, dad was a Red Sox fan, took my brother and I to Fenway Park. Love him for that. Love dad. What's your dad's name? Henry K. Bouchard, Hank. Hank, he made you a sports fan, Pete. Finally, Tim. Tim, you got to really make it count. 20 seconds. Season tickets uh, from 1958 to 1999 for the Giants in San Francisco, and I saw the World Series in 1962. Dad did that My for you. What's your dad's name? Richard. Richard. Love that. Thank you, Tim. Happy Father's Day, everybody.